0: Four, three, oh, two, one, and we're live. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. Appreciate it.
1: Um, Let everybody know who you are. Lane? Uh, I'm a meathead who likes science. Uh, (laughs) Got into bodybuilding when I was young, uh, and then did a BS in biochemistry, PhD in nutritional science. Um, Kept lifting, did powerlifting, won two national championships, got silver medal at World's, Set a then world squat record and did also bodybuilding and won a natural pro card. They actually have natural bodybuilding, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, throughout that time, just, you know, when I first got into it, one magazine said one thing. And even in the same magazine, they would have an article one month. Next month, it would contradict it. Mm. So I was like, I'm just going to try and figure this shit out for myself. So
0: Which is the place that a lot of people listening are at right
1: now. Yeah, and it's, it's tough because it's kind of like, who do you trust? Because right. no, not everybody has the time or the energy to go and do a degree in this stuff. So, But that was me. I kind of got down the rabbit hole of, all right, let's try and figure this nutrition stuff out. And, of course, the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know. But, uh, yeah, it just became a passion for me. To And to this day, I'm still very uh, – I love this stuff. This is what gets me up, gets me going.
0: Well, guys like you are very important, guys who actually train very hard and in- – Really understand the science. This is because it's usually one or the other.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, like when I was doing it, I graduated my PhD in 2010. When we started, we actually both knew each other from the bodybuilding.com message boards. So those back before social media.
2: Trained together back in 2006 or seven? Seven and, yeah, at yeah. experimental biology. Yeah, so this yeah. big,
1: there's a big symposium every year for science geeks. And uh, we were both going to it and we found out about each other on the forums and we went and trained together and he's a he's a beast uh and uh yeah we really hit it off and we've been friends since then so for everybody awesome. who's looking for a fight so, sorry <laughs> we're
0: probably going to be pretty friendly well it's going to be a conversation we don't need to have a, a fight. fight dom uh you've been on the podcast before but for people who didn't yeah. listen to that one please tell them who you are and what you do
2: yeah uh i'm keep the sucker yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I will go. Getting back, I, I majored in nutrition actually as an undergrad, but didn't actually see a career in it that much. So I went into neuroscience. The net nineties was a decade of the brain, and uh, my my you know formal training is in neuroscience. And it got steered towards basically changing the neuropharmacology of the brain with nutrition, and that's what the ketogenic diet does. And it has. Tremendous benefits, I think, for military personnel, which is funded by the Office of Navy Research and the Department of Defense, to develop ketogenic strategies to enhance readiness, uh, resilience, and, and performance and safety in military personnel.
0: And what what? Is, why specifically um, does the ketogenic diet help military people? I know there's a thing with uh, Navy SEALs with uh, preventing epilepsy. Re- with, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. So uh, central nervous system oxygen toxicity, a limitation of that is, uh, or limitation of Navy SEAL diving is oxygen toxicity seizures. And uh, anti-epileptic drugs are not really a viable option because they can uh, their side effects. They can decrease cognitive, uh, you know, resilience, physical resilience. A ketogenic strategy is something that's being studied now from a basic science mechanistic perspective to animal work to now human studies. So it's not, you know, out in the field yet, but some guys are actually doing it. Uh, And I study the science of that. So for people who don't understand what we're saying, um, for some folks who have epilepsy, the ketogenic diet has been shown to stop seizures. Absolutely. Go Google the Charlie Foundation. So that's how I actually got linked in. And actually, I met uh, a natural drug-free bodybuilder. His name was Mike Dancer, and he had severe terminal epilepsy Google Mike Dancer ketogenic diet, and you'll find an amazing story about a guy who used nutrition to manage his epilepsy when drugs failed, and he used it to prep and win bodybuilding shows and compete in
0: bodybuilding. And the rebreathers sometimes cause seizures with some of the soldiers.
2: They can. so, uh, for example, just 50 feet of seawater using a closed circuit br- rebreather, like a Drager rebreather, at 50 feet of seawater, you're... Per- potential for getting oxygen toxicity seizure can occur in just 10 minutes. So that's a little bit of time and that's not very deep. So there's no way to predict that and there's no way as of now to prevent that. So we study physiological biomarkers that could warn people of an impending seizure and we also develop uh, countermeasures to mitigate oxygen toxicity seizures. I focus mostly on drugs. I'm in a pharmacology and physiology department but i realized that people with epilepsy the ketogenic diet was more effective than drugs so i got steered into you know nutrition which was my undergrad and then that kicked off about 10 years ago and i've just been deep into probably a dozen or more different applications of nutritional ketosis awesome and lane i've been paying attention to you online for a long time
0: one of the things Uh-oh. you do a great job with is just calling bullshit. <laughs> on i mean you love to call bullshit, clearly But whenever people are overstating claims or people get ridiculous, and I think this is one of the things that is a problem with any diet where people get really enthusiastic about it. That becomes an ideology, whether it's the ketogenic diet or the carnivore diet or the, you know, fill in the blanks, vegan diet. People decide this is the end all, be all. It's going to cure cancer, make you smarter, the dick's going to grow a foot. (laughs) All these things are going to happen. And you do a great job of calling bullshit on that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not anti-keto, I'm not anti-vegan, I'm anti-bullshit. And one of the problems we have is nutrition is replacing religion for a lot of people. So you find something that you identify with, and then people start to try to say, because they identify with that movement, or like, for example, vegans, they identify with, many of them, uh, protection of animals. Uh, Not my job to judge their ethics on that sort of thing. But then they kind of try to backtrack to find the science to support them as well. And they, they pick and choose. And this is guilty of all groups, not just vegans. This is also a lot of ketogenic diet, zealots, uh, carnivore diet, whatever have you. If it has the word diet, there's zealots out there who are going after it. And I will stick up for uh, – I've stuck up at a scientific conference for the ketogenic diet. Uh, you were We were having a roundtable about something different. And somebody said, Well, we know that the ketogenic diet impairs exercise performance and endurance athletes. And I said, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, you know, the, the, it's pretty ambivalent the, or ambiguous as to whether or not it does. It seems to be kind of individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, on the average, it doesn't seem to impair exercise performance. So it's kind of what you like. But when you have people who, you know, like, like a Gary Taubes who says, Well, calories don't matter, uh, it's all carbohydrates. Um, that sort of thing, or the carbohydrate-insulin model of obesity, I mean, the, the research is you're able to do a lot of hand-waving about insulin. And, you know, when well, you burn so much fat when you're on a high-fat diet, which is true, by the way, you, you burn a lot of fat. But what they don't talk about is that it's, it's overall fat balance, how much fat you store versus how much fat you burn. And when you're on a high-fat diet, you store a lot of fat. You also burn a lot of fat. The overall caloric balance is what determines whether or not you will have net storage or net deposition. The same thing for a high carb diet as well. You know this idea that with high insulin, uh, it just completely shuts down all fat burning everywhere. That, that's just not true. Now, if you have high carbohydrate, you will burn less fat, but you're also storing less fat as well. And again, the net caloric balance is going to be what determines how much you store. Because you don't really store carbohydrate as fat for most people. They did a study uh, overfeeding women where they overfed them 50% above their caloric maintenance. And they found that of 282 grams of fat that they stored during a day in adipose, only 4 grams came from carbohydrate. 278 came from fat.
2: So, Glucose. What about fructose? So fructose causes, we think, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So that could be, you know, that, that's de novo, de novo lipogenesis is higher with fructose. And you're, you're think about people consuming it in liquid drinks, 100 to 200 grams a day, which is not uncommon, even for my wife, not uncommon.
1: So, <laughs> so. fructose does seem to have a little bit of different hepatic yeah. metabolism. But I was actually across the hall from um, a professor who was doing a lot of the research on, on fructose and obesity and, and fatty liver disease. And even he came to the conclusion that if you overfeed fructose yeah. and it creates and a caloric surplus, surplus and you're yeah, overfeeding yeah. fructose, mm-hmm. then you can have some wonky stuff start to go on
2: relative to other macros. Well, well, yeah, try, yeah, to keep this, try to keep this right next to your face. Sorry. Got it. That's lane, what she lane said. Is so powerful.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I talk loud and a lot. It's good. Um, so if you're, if you're doing that, if you're creating that caloric surplus, what you find is when you're in net storage, when you're driving more uh, nutrients into adipose and sometimes liver, depending on metabolism, but it takes, it takes a lot of fructose to do that and a caloric surplus, you start to create a lot of wonky stuff going on. Um, the mitochondria starts to become dysfunctional. And you know people make a big deal about, oh, well, you have... We have claimed now that everything causes uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes. For, for first, it was fats, uh, then carbohydrates. And there's actually professors out there who actually will claim that protein gives you diabetes. Can, I stop, diabetes. can
0: I stop you for a second? Yeah. What do you mean the mitochondria becomes dysfunctional? How does the mitochondrial
1: – how does that happen? Okay. So I, I'm going to state for everybody that I'm going out on a limb. This is my opinion. Okay. Um, if you look at the research on obesity and diabetes – what happens is you have everything start to elevate in the bloodstream. So if you measure like there was a professor who thought that branched chain amino acids were causing obesity because they were elevated in the bloodstream during, uh, or sorry, during type 2 diabetes. Well, yeah, branched chain amino acids are elevated. So is fatty acids, so are triacylglycerides, so is glucose. So is it really those things causing it or is it possible that when you are overfeeding relative to what you burn, relative to that turnover – that mitochondria start to become dysfunctional, probably a lot due to inactivity. Um, and the mitochondria is, as we call the powerhouse of the cell, as you probably learned in high school biology or whatever they taught it to you as. That is where everything fluxes through. So that is where you're creating ATP. That's where you're burning through lipids, carbohydrates, that sort of thing. If that becomes dysfunctional and you're not getting enough flux, enough pull through that mitochondria, What happens is you start to back up every part of metabolism. So all the metabolic byproducts, almost all of them, inhibit everything within the cell.
2: There's a metabolomic signature for that. And an epiphenomenon, if you want to call it that, would be elevated branched chain amino acids. Could be a consequence of that in some people. So these
1: things start, these byproducts, these metabolic byproducts, because you're not fluxing enough through the cell they start accumulating within the cell and start to inhibit the Krebs cycle, glycolysis. And so everything starts backing up to the point where you also start inhibiting the insulin receptor. And now you have glucose, fatty acids, and uh, amino acids also backing up to the point where they start to overspill into the bloodstream. And you see these, this accumulation of all of them in the bloodstream in type 2 diabetes. And I actually think that, again, me going out on a limb, obesity doesn't cause type two diabetes and type two diabetes doesn't cause obesity that they develop in concert from the same problem, which is overfeeding under activity. Mm. So a lot of it is about how much nutrients you're fluxing into cells versus how much energy you're creating, fluxing them through the cell and out. So when you're overfeeding, whether it be carbohydrate fat, you're fluxing more energy in than you can dispose of. And now you have to do something with it. Well when you run out of when you do that much to it and mitochondria start to become dysfunction dysfunctional, you start to not have enough places to put it away and it starts spilling into the bloodstream and now you cause all kinds of problems. So
0: one of the things that we really wanted to talk about here is high carb versus low carb. Because yep. this is a, a just a giant point of contention today in nutrition, especially in terms of Uh, Athletes with performance uh, in mind. That's it's a big factor whether or not high carb or low carb is the way to go And there's a lot of zealots on both sides and there's a lot of bullshit And there's a lot of you know online experts and one of the great thing about bringing you two guys in here is because you could Really actually explain the science behind it now You've been great Lane at pointing out that there's it's not a magic bullet And, you know, and so many people like to sort of stress it that way that they they, they like to portray ketogenic diet as this is it. This is the end all be all. I figured out what to do. This is the way everyone should be eating. You don't think so.
1: I don't think so, because if you look at the the weight loss problem in our society, uh, and I'm, I'm writing a book called Fat Loss Forever, where I talk about this in detail. We don't have a weight loss problem. Six out of every seven people are able to lose a significant amount of body weight in their life who are obese or overweight. The problem is the weight regain statistics are absolutely like terrifying. Uh, Within one year, 70% will put it all back on. Within two years, uh, it's 85%. Within three years, it's 95%. So that means diets have a 95% failure rate. And of those people, one-third to two-thirds will add more than they originally lost. And this gets kind of into yo-yo dieting, and I talk about that as well. But the the real problem is that people don't stick to pick something that's sustainable for them. All the research—if there is one bit of research out there that that we have that shows how to create lasting weight loss—and you look at the people who are the five percent who actually keep it uh, off—it's that they pick something that's sustainable, whether it be ketogenic, whether it be low carb, high or low fat whatever it is, vegan, something that they can sustain and make a lifestyle. Because if, if you look at uh, meta-analyses, uh, uh, for our listeners, meta-analyses are, are kind of a study of studies. So they take researchers take studies that have similar parameters, and they kind of lump them together. And they look at, okay, what's the consensus amongst these studies? And they have advanced statistics they use to run this. If you look at low-carb versus low-fat, there's no difference in adherence overall on the whole. There's no difference. And there's no difference in weight loss. There's no difference in uh, blood lipids, even glycemic control. So there was a study where they, a meta analysis of, I think it was 23 studies over 3,000 people, where they looked at okay, if you control calories, so calories are equated, does low carb versus low fat make a difference on weight loss, glycemic control? Those Not necessarily
2: things. the ketogenic diet. So by right. definition, mm-hmm. we have an objective biomarker that defines the ketogenic diet. It's the only diet that actually has something that you you know you can measure in your blood to say you're on this diet. And when your ketone levels are elevated, that confers many different benefits uh, that I believe can enhance adherence to the diet. Before we get into the woods here, I want to clarify one
0: thing. Yep. The difference between uh someone being on a diet and being able to sustain it and not being able to sustain it and gaining all that weight back isn't that a discipline issue? Well,
1: partly, but we kind of had to start looking at okay, if we if we go in let me re, let me recircle we have to find what requires the least amount of discipline for somebody to stick to because discipline is, is while some people have more, some people have less, um, it is a, a f- finite resource. So when do we normally find that people like kind of drop off whatever they're doing? It's when they're stressed out, work stressing them out. Uh, they're going through a divorce, those kinds of things, right? That's where our, our discipline kind of wanes because we're trying to be so disciplined for this other thing mm-hmm. and it's draining us. So what happens w- with with diet is in people who are busy, people who have a lot of stress in their life, that's where they really start overeating. So we have to find something that requires, I look at it as let's find something that requires the minimal amount of, of discipline for a person so that when your life goes to absolute shit, you can still stick to it and so for some people that is a very very individual thing and they see this in the dietary studies that what works for one person to create a deficit and sustainable isn't the same way for another person and dom even commented on this about his wife chilla Um, she does much better on a higher ratio of carbohydrates to fat
2: yeah i I mean early on it was obvious that she wasn't going to change her diet i the time that we met, like ten years ago, almost <laughs> we—I was really getting into this, and I really felt that for me, at least. Uh, but she would stop at checkers and you know get a burger and with a <laughs> sugary drink, and, and she's a tremendously carb intolerant. She was very skinny as a kid, and uh, she tolerates you mean tolerant? Uh, carbohydrate. She's very carbohydrate tolerant. Yes. Did I say intolerant? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so, and and you know, if the diet low carb, I feel and. Maybe and ketogenic putting it under that umbrella works. I think for up to twenty-five to thirty percent of people, uh, especially if they're carbohydrate intolerant, and I believe that it does that by virtue of elevating ketones, shifting your uh, the neuropharmacology of the brain. For example, it works through ghrelin. It works through there's new science emerging right now, showing that appetite regulation is influenced uh, positively by uh, nutritional ketosis in ways that we're just starting to learn now. Well, you can certainly feel it. It's one of the oh, weirder yeah, yeah. things about the yes. ketogenic diet. When you're in that state, you, all of a sudden you're just not hungry the same. It's, there's yeah. not a, an overwhelming need for yeah. food. Yeah. I'm, I haven't had anything to eat today. I mean, when I was eating massive plates of pasta 25 years ago and I went to this this long without food, I would start getting shaky. I would, I would have a hypoglycemic response. And I'm completely resilient to that. And that has major implications for military personnel being keto adapted, not just for performance, preventing seizures, and I think for uh, cognitive function too, but you, uh, it's very liberating. So meal frequency is not an issue. So if you're in austere environments where you have limited food availability, that becomes a major issue. And if you're working as a scientist and you can't, you know, you're working with animals, you're doing experiments, you don't have time to eat. I need to maintain that cognitive function. I need to be sharp, you know, with limited food. So it worked very good for me throughout my professorship, you know, getting tenure and things like that, where I could just put more time and energy into my work without having to stop, prepare a meal, eat a meal, clean up. Like, I think I wasted a lot of time doing that when I was eating five to six meals a day. He he said something that I think you've called
0: bullshit on before. The the phrase (laughs) carb intolerant.
1: So, yeah. So that was actually going to be one of the things yes. that's going to say, hey, we have something we can disagree about because okay. carb
2: tolerance, carb, carb, you would say. Depends on how we define that. Yes. Yes. So if you define it by a blood marker, your glucose response to a meal. Okay. So
1: a couple of things I, I want to come right out and frame this whole discussion real quick. So we both agree that in terms of weight loss and body composition, that your total calorie intake per day is the most important thing. Correct.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I believe that ketogenic strategy is a way to regulate that.
1: Right. So with with carbon tolerance, if if you look at the benefits of like on blood glucose, blood lipids, it is almost 90 to 95 percent explained by weight loss. So you, t- you can take people, put them on a high carb, very low fat diet, their blood glucose and their blood lipids will drop e- even with like higher insulin levels than people who are on a, a low carb diet.
0: If they're With, on a calorie restricted yes, diet. Yes, if
1: they're calorie restricted. Now, again, that, that becomes a very individual thing. I, you know, If somebody says, hey, I like a ketogenic diet because for me, it helps me to create a calorie deficit. I can stick to it. Hey, knock yourself out. That is no problem. But that is not always going to work. Some people don't feel that satiated on a ketogenic diet there are people who do feel hungrier on that. So that is a very individual response. And again, when we look at studies, we're looking at means, right? So we're talking about averages. And there are outliers. Like if you look at any Gaussian distribution chart, which is kind of how populations distribute based on a certain treatment, you have about 60 to 70% that fall into the the average. Then you have another, you know, 10, 20% that are kind of do a little bit better one way versus the other. And then you have 5% on either end that are, or sorry, two and a half percent on either end that are outliers, right? So just to frame this again, let's take weightlifting. We know weightlifting makes you bigger and stronger, right? Like that is not up for debate. We agree on that. Uh, There are studies that have shown that some people who are beginners, where you should be gaining a lot of muscle very quickly, uh, some people will go from the first time they walk in the gym, squat 185, 12 weeks later, they're squatting 400 pounds. Some people don't get stronger. There have actually been studies where over 12 weeks, there's a few individuals who did not get stronger. So those are your outliers right there. So if we circle this back to ketogenic diet, I'm not sitting here and saying that somebody may actually physiologically do better on a ketogenic diet versus a, a lower fat diet. That's a very individual response. But when we start making recommendations for people, what we should start with is, okay, create a calorie deficit that allows you to lose some weight. Because if we look at the studies and we look at, if we equate for protein, because that's a big thing. So if you look at some of the studies where uh, Volick did, where he compared like uh, your kind of food guide pyramid type diet to a ketogenic diet, the ketogenic diets were a little bit higher protein. That protein has a thermogenic effect and also an appetite suppression effect. When you equate for those, and there's been 32 studies, there was a recent meta-analysis done of 32 studies that equated for calories and protein absolutely no difference in fat loss when you equate for those two calories and protein because protein's a big one because protein has a big benefit on thermogenesis and and weight loss also lean body mass retention which is huge because one of the reasons people regain weight is because when they lose weight they tend to lose fat and muscle and when they regain it it's almost all fat in the initial phase as
2: that, far as that data may not have included data with the ketogenic diet so i know you know, when I did the diet, I've seen a lot of blood work. So, for example, my hemoglobin H1C, triglycerides, uh, hsCRP goes down, insulin goes down, blood pressure goes down, and that that all those all those changes happened without my body weight changing. So that would kind of argue against that you needed a calorie deficit. Uh, and I've seen it many times, but once you could, I could be eating 80 to 90% carbs and reduce my body weight and get changes in all that. I could actually increase my carbs. And if I create a calorie deficit, you know, my hemoglobin H1C will go down. My sugar will go down things like that. So that is really the dry That's like, that trumps everything, that, yeah. that calorie deficit. So that, that's
1: an important thing. So that's what, and that's what I think a lot of people miss. Okay. And but, I think that that yeah. what i'll say is sorry i I'll, well, i'm just saying
2: so <laughs> like i think that's very powerful too that these changes that i just mentioned can occur without uh with without changing your body weight so right. they are just you know you're fundamentally changing your metabolism when you do that from car and that has pretty wide-ranging implications so i i think that what i'm going to say is that if you if
1: we're going to talk about people getting healthier the first thing we need to start with is let's not lose 50% are getting about 5%, right? So if I tell somebody, Hey, find a diet you can stick to that's sustainable. And if you can lose 10%, you can lose 10% of your body weight. Even for obese people, they get almost all the health benefits in the first 10%. Now, now maybe some people like you or people who respond really well to a ketogenic diet. I'm not, again, there's outliers or people on the other sides of the Gaussian curve. Um, If you do a little bit better on there, then great. But if you find a ketogenic diet is completely unsustainable for you and you're not, you're not able to stick to it, but you're trying to do it because you're trying to get a little bit better blood glucose regulation, you're, you're, you know, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because if you could stick to it, like let's say for the individual, a higher carb diet was easier for them to stick to. They could lose weight on that. Then that's the bulk of their health benefits they're going to get from it. I'm, I'm having a hard time with these terms, easier.
0: Because I don't know exactly why it would be easier or wouldn't be easier. And I, I always wonder, again, is this a discipline issue?
2: Because that's that's your experience
0: food yeah, preference. Just, I, yeah, it, it comes food down preference to for f- sure. Food
2: preference, but I believe that by when you follow low carb, not even ketogenic diet, the variability of the fluctuations in your insulin and, and blood glucose, the postprandial dip in blood glucose that you get after eat, that's virtually abolished or significantly attenuated. And then you have, uh, you know, ketones and are working through ghrelin, for example. You could just, you could eat a normal diet and drink ketones and it's actually suppressing your appetite through ghrelin. So we know that these changes... Through reductions are, in
1: ghrelin, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: So... Um, so these changes sort of are, are happening, but uh, they're, my sister, for example, you know, followed the ketogenic diet and uh, found it easy to follow, but she gained weight because she was eating all these fat bombs that she was making. So she, uh, <laughs> she so went too think, far. And a lot of people don't necessarily need a nutritionist to tell them what to do, but they need like a nutritional psychotherapist or something. You know, their, their relationship with food is really, and I think that's what... Lane has a firm grasp on, there's no substitute for experience. And Lane has worked with so many different clients and knows that, you know, you could probably follow the ketogenic diet. Your listeners are probably fans of the ketogenic diet. I can do it. I love fatty food, you know, uh, high fat food, low carb food. Uh, But generally speaking, it's, you know you have to approach it from the perspective sort of eating behavior and Mm. i think that's that's really people want to go off the diet it's just a natural human trait yeah it's
0: a weird psychological trait right you just want to cheat you want to just stuff your face with cupcakes every now and then and, and then you just you feel like it's too much torture to keep yourself on this narrow path of high fat low carb moderate protein
2: but you know five years ago uh, 10 years ago that was the case but now there's ketogenic brownies there's ketogenic cookies there's many different food companies it all like shit check out well check it, well <laughs> go, really to, tried, go, go to I've tried
0: I've tried so hard go to keto <laughs> I we, <laughs> you, you I, have a real one and a, <laughs> and a keto cookie and that fucking real cookie gets eaten every time
2: yeah well they they are evolving just you know food technology yeah, is evolving I'm kidding uh, some of them no yeah. foods
0: make some good stuff
2: go to go to ketonutrition.org yeah. and there's some things there that are I would say about 10 or 20% pass the test, meaning that they taste okay and they actually do what they say. They actually elevate ketones or, you know, don't cause a glycemic response. Some of those keto cookies seem like
0: they have no foundation. Like you bite in, they like, they go away, like as you're (laughs) eating them. It's like they dissolve, you know, then yeah. like you have like a good toll house cookie, a good real chocolate chip cookie, yeah. and you bite into that sucker. You know it's bad for you, but god
2: damn it yeah. feels good
0: while it's being did, bad. Did you try
2: the Quest protein cookies? Yes. They're
0: yeah. pretty good. Yeah. They're pretty the, good. They're Some pretty of good. them are pretty good. Yeah. They can't fuck with real cookies.
2: Yeah. Well, I dip I dip them in in like sour cream, right? Oh, and then well, I eat well, them or, or <laughs> coconut cream. So that then it becomes ketogenic. Sour <laughs>
1: right?
0: cream. Jesus try Christ. It, try man. It. Don't knock it through. So, so it's yeah. a commitment to high.
1: Fat. You bring that up. Interesting, though, um, if you look at people that, that think they're addicted to sugar or that sugar's a lot, if you look at things like cookies and cakes, and all, it's actually they have more calories from fats than they do sugars. It's sugar and fat together is hyper palatable. Mm, right. So we yeah. one of the things I was, was going to bring up is, um, you know, this idea that, that, that sugar is so inherently bad. And you said that the cookie, you know, we view that as an inherently bad thing. But what if I told you that there were certain people, not everybody, everybody's different, but there were certain people who, if you tell them, hey, you can have that cookie every once in a while, if you track it, work it into your macronutrient intake, that that's fine, that that actually improved their adherence to diet. So Because you give them a reward? No, not a reward system. You're not a dog. Don't reward yourself with oh, food. okay. <laughs> Be- because, because increased flexibility uh, actually usually improves adherence. Ah. So we see this actually with training, too. Uh, athletes, are, when you do a flexible training model uh, where they have to get in a certain amount of training, but they kind of can pick and choose themselves which days are hard and which days are a little bit, they actually do better. Diet is very similar to that. So now you always have to sacrifice something in order to, uh, if you want to lose weight, right? So if you're doing a ketogenic diet, what you're sacrificing is saying, well, I like the spontaneous reductions in appetite. So I don't mind eating not these foods so I can get that. If you're doing like kind of what – I don't want to say I popularized it, but myself and some other people on the message boards popularized something called flexible dieting where you can eat essentially whatever you want as long as you hit your protein, carbohydrate, and fat targets. Now what you're sacrificing is, okay, you're tracking every day. Do you right? do that through an app? Through what? An app. Uh, no, I'm old school. I actually just do it through Excel. Okay. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, my girlfriend, Holly, she has a, an app on her phone and like she, she has me like – if she's driving, she's like, oh, will you put in what I just ate? I'm like, babe, I don't even I, no, I have no idea how to work this thing, you know. So because when I went to do my graduate studies, I mean, I wanted to find magic foods. I wanted to find something that would – because how else can you make a living? You have to set yourself apart. I mean, if I'm over here saying, it's hard for me to sell what I, what I do. Because I'm saying, well, you, everything in moderation and, and you got to be diligent and you got to have these behaviors. And that, that doesn't sound sexy when there's that, another guy over here saying, nah, bro, it's just carbs. I know metabolism's complicated and everything, but it's just carbs. You know, when I started working with people and I've worked with uh, over 1500 people coaching and nutrition online over the past 13 years, which actually probably taught me more than my than my Ph.D. did. Um, what I found was is that people were so different individually in terms of what what made them tick. You know, uh, now I feel like I should probably go back and get some what kind of... What makes them tick biologically what makes them tick or
0: psychologically? Both,
1: both. Yeah. So I can't sit here and say by the research that, that carbohydrate versus fat makes a difference on fat loss. But what I can tell you is that some people just seem to do better on lower carb, higher fat, but also some people I worked with just seem to do better with higher carb, lower fat. Now, whether that's a psychological thing or a physiological thing, it's hard to tease out.
2: Genetically too, I think. I mean, we all have different SNPs, you know, that, you know, some people have suppressed fatty acid oxidation pathways, others are like screaming fat metabolizers, you know, or, or fat or sugar metabolizers. Yeah. You know.
1: So, but if you look at, like, I remember I had a conversation with, um, with the, re- the the researcher uh, Dr. Nakamura at Illinois, who was doing uh, some of that fructose uh, stuff, when I was a when I was a first year grad student, I said, "Well, it's this this high fructose corn syrup. This is what's causing obesity, right?" And he's like, "Well, it's easy to overconsume. You know, like if you take a a, di- a soda and you drink it, you're not less hungry than you were. It's not very satiating." He said, "But if you're if you're controlling your calories, it doesn't seem to be more lipogenic than." Comparable carbohydrate No, oh, and I thought I remember thinking "Well, that can't be right All these people say that high fructose corn syrup is like the worst thing in the world for you There was there was a few studies that really changed my opinion on sugar now The listeners are going to hear
2: this and think that I'm advocating for sugar. I'm so not you're not talking about in the, in the context of a calorie surplus Mm-hmm. Uh, a surplus amount of fructose overeat. can, yeah. which is kind of explains the state of the United States, you know, uh, Part, partly, yeah, yeah. partly.
1: So if you look at sugar intake, there's, so this kind of gets back to the carbohydrate insulin obesity model. Uh, if you look at sugar intake over the last 50 years or last hundred years, it went up very steadily with obesity until around the mid nineties. And then it took a sharp dip while obesity continued to climb. Now, again, that's just correlation data. But if you do look at the, the overall calorie intake versus obesity rates, it's, it's like an R-squared of like
2: 0.94, which is really, Does really Does sugar close. include high fructose corn syrup? Is that lumped into sugar? So this
1: was added sugars. This was added okay. sugars. Okay. But there was a study done by a metabolic ward study. So can, again, I, I,
0: can I stop you there? Yep. Are, you, are you saying that this is added sugars, not high fructose, fructose corn syrup? So when you talk about the graph of consumption that... Sugar dropped off, but high fructose corn syrup did not is that accurate because that took over in many of the products So 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 if there's there's an increase in obesity, Mm -hmm. but a decrease in sugar consumption But you're not saying a decrease in high fructose corn syrup consumption
1: So I don't know that I'd have to look that up So here's here's me being a scientist and Mm. saying the three magic words. I don't know one of the last conferences I I went
2: to showed that like the rise over the last 10 to 15 years like skyrocketing with high fructose corn syrup. Mm. And because sugar was taken out, high fructose corn syrup is subsidized by farmers, a lot cheaper and And more. Would you agree that it's essentially your body, the way it processes it is essentially the
0: same? Sugar versus high fructose corn syrup, calorie for
1: calorie? Well, so sugar, sucrose, is 50% uh, glucose, 50% fructose. High fructose corn syrup is 55% fructose, 45% glucose. But if you're saying that that 5% is what's creating obesity... Eh. Now, again, psychologically, some people just down sodas like it's their job, you know. Right. And if you're doing that, especially as children, that's a big, big no-no. Whether it's
2: the Mexican kind with the cane sugar, we or have kids now with high, with uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that yeah. did not exist. But I would like say that years ago, we got a little kid, like kids. With and you high, think that's from corn syrup? I think it, it's it's due to an excess surplus calories. And those surplus calories being high fructose corn
1: So if you're if you're used to eating a certain amount of calories, and you may, and we back when we were actually maintaining our weight back in the before the 60s, we were eating about 2,200 calories a day. That was the average, uh, and now it's like 2,800 is the the average consumption in the United States amongst adults. Um, I think I eat a lot more than that. Well, <laughs> but, but you train, <laughs> but you train, and you have a higher lean body mass, so that's 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 fine. Now some people, yeah, we that's a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, the if you, if you start adding sodas in, which aren't satiating at all, they don't positively affect your hunger hormones, uh, but you continue your same normal food intake, boom. I mean, you can start to store, right? Yeah. So, But I can't tell somebody, hey, there's no way you can lose weight and drink a soda because that's not true. Um, there was a study done by uh, Sirwit, and they looked at um, high glycemic uh, diet versus low glycemic. And I mean extreme. They did... Uh, One group had over 100 grams of sugar a day. Another group had uh, 10 grams or less per day. Or sorry, it was 11 grams or less per day. And they looked at the differences in weight loss, blood lipids, all that kind of stuff.
2: Did they Uh, they adjust for carbohydrates? So the group that ate 10 grams of sugar or less a day... Did they eat the same amount of total carbohydrates? Same
1: insulin? amount of total carbs. Okay. So same of low total glycemic carbs. Okay. versus high glycemic. Yeah. Right? And
2: processed carbs can spike your glucose more than sugar. <laughs> right. So they did have
1: a higher fiber intake, mm-hmm. okay. but what they, well, they did find that they had uh, higher insulin responses to the meal the high sugar group did, but no differences in weight loss. So they both both groups lost weight. Uh, the only real difference was the 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 lower glycemic group had a little bit better. Both groups improved improved cholesterol. The lower glycemic group had just a little bit better improvement, probably because they were eating higher fiber, which can bind cholesterol, and you it. I would like to see what happened if they equated. So again, it's, it's creating that calorie deficit. Both groups lost weight. Now, is it more difficult to create a calorie deficit if you're eating a lot of sugar? Yes. Okay? So I always tell people, your diet is like a budget if you're practicing something like flexible dieting, right? So if I've got somebody... Like myself, who has above-average muscle mass, hopefully I can say that, and p- people on the internet are probably gonna knock oh, me. Oh, you fucking dick! Yeah. Look <laughs> at him—he's wearing a shirt with his name on it. So,
0: okay, I'll say it—you have above-average muscle mass. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome.
1: So, so if you have above-average muscle mass, you train hard. You have a faster metabolism naturally. I mean, I've seen people who could maintain their body weight on six, seven thousand calories a day you have a higher metabolic rate, you have a really big budget. So if you make $100 million a year, is it a big deal for you to go out and buy a $500,000 sports car if you can still pay your mortgage and pay all the other requirements that you have? No, it's fine. But if you make eighty grand a year, should you go out and buy a $500,000 sports car? Probably not, right?
2: And, and it's if you same- make thirty, you should be on the keto diet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> if you... Well, you'd have increased food <clears throat> efficiency, so... Yeah. Um, it's the same thing. So like people uh, – so Pop-Tarts somehow became the, the model of the flexible dieting movement because people were – right. here's why. It's kind of like counterculture. It's like so, a Pop-Tart
2: zealots out there. It's like – so whenever you have
1: <laughs> – so clean eating became a thing amongst bodybuildings. We we, we say you eat clean even though there's no Broccoli objective – chicken, baby. There's no objective definition right. of that. Um, so people were like, oh, yeah, well, I'm getting shredded and I eat Pop-Tart every day, right? So – a lot of your followers do that they do yep. now, now but I'm,
2: i don't i actually created don't even, that. i don't even like pop tarts <laughs> did to be you honest. do this did
1: you start this <laughs> no no, no, yes. no it's it's more <laughs> I, don't, about, I don't know who
2: else you know hang um, on
1: let me let me put some context <laughs> yeah. to this so it's more about people saying hey i can still eat these foods i enjoy and i'm still losing weight because i'm with it i'm in a calorie deficit and i'm hitting my protein carbon fat targets but if you're somebody with a slow metabolism and you're not exercising very much, and maybe all you're eating is 100 grams of carbs a day, should you spend 75 grams of those carbs on two Pop-Tarts? Hell no! That's a terrible idea, because you're not going to be able to hit your other micronutrients and those sorts of things. But if you're eating 4,000 calories, like an Alberto Nunez friend of ours, yeah, if you're eating 4,000 calories a day and losing weight, is it a big deal if he has two Pop-Tarts? Not really, because he. I actually had one competitor, uh, again, a competitor, who had such a fast metabolism that he was actually having a lot of GI dysfunction because he, 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 he was eating like 700 grams of carbs and 200 grams of fat per day just to maintain his weight. And he said, I, I, I feel bloated all the time. And I said, well, what are you eating? Like, what are your foods? And it was chicken, rice, and broccoli. And I said, and some peanut butter for fats. And I'm like, well, no wonder, dude, you're having 150 grams of fiber a day. You're, you're literally full of shit. Like your shit <clears throat> is like literally backed up to your esophagus. Okay. So I said, T- do me a favor, eat some pizza, eat some Pop-Tarts, eat some more calorically dense foods and see how you feel after three days. He emailed me after three days. He's like, man, I feel so much better. I dropped like three pounds. I feel
2: amazing. That doesn't make any sense. Because well, Lane, got Lane rid inspired of, the Pop-Tart generation. Uh, he also inspired, and I watched this play out online. This makes he, me sound really bad. Well, <laughs> Lane uh, actually inspired a generation of... drug-free bodybuilders to go and do their PhDs, you know, and, uh, actually one, one's in my lab right, right now. Andrew, I coached him for a little while. Yeah. Amazing student. And I think he, he learned a lot just from watching Lane so, uh, but I think, you know, that it was amazing to see these guys eating that amount of pop tarts and and junk foods and meal and I learned a lot from that but I think they could do it with with better carbohydrates. So oh. so what works for performance, what works for bodybuilding may not be is probably not optimal for longevity and health. So that I, that's an important point, you know. Lane winced. I, I yeah so, i the audio
0: listeners. I, only. I, okay so, so.
2: <laughs> i i i know where he's coming from but you know i'd like to hear his opinion yeah so um before you do that why do you
0: think that it would be an issue what what would be the issue with sugar and with pop tarts and junk food what would be the negative effects biologically
2: i think the accumulation of the postprandial spikes in glucose and insulin over time especially in the context of a calorie surplus could be a bad thing if you are doing a calorie surplus to example, for example to gain weight and mass over time which bodybuilders do you know following contest in the off season Uh, I think it's even more important, almost, to actually stick with uh, uh, foods, carbohydrate sources that are lower glycemic, you know, you can only tolerate so much fiber, but I think if you are running a calorie... Sur- if you are doing a ketogenic diet and you have a calorie surplus, that could be a bad thing. Your triglycer- your triglycerides will go up. So you're you are you're putting too much fat in the system and that...
1: But it would go up on a higher carb diet. It, so, it so would this go is me up on a higher carb yeah. diet too. Mm-hmm. So,
2: I mean, I kind of would stay along the lines of maybe protein, but you just, you know, you titrate it in in a reasonable amount. But I, I just think that the, the negative you know, that could come out of that is that you're you you know, I, I'm following a blood glucose curve, right? And an insulin curve. And and I see this very dramatically, for example, in my, my student, uh, who's a type one diabetic, Andrew Kootnik, who's in and he wears a DEXCOM, a continuous blood glucose monitoring system. And his insulin requirements dramatically dropped with low carb and his glucose fluctuations dramatically improved and that's gonna pay big dividends probably if you have type one diabetes, you ever, you know, the 10 top things, uh, on, on how humans die, you have a greater risk for every one of those, you know, dramatic, you know, it cuts 10 years off of your life. If the tighter you can keep your glucose, uh, levels, your blood glucose and your insulin levels that in the long run, I feel it's going to pay big. The science still has to show that. I think it's not totally clear. Uh, but I think we can, for type one diabetics, which I think we can apply that data to the, to the population if they control their glucose levels, that pays big dividends in, in the long run. Lane?
1: So uh, a couple of things. You actually touched on a couple of the points I was going to bring up, but I want to address one thing first, which is uh, the higher postprandial insulin and those the negative effects on health. Um, so if you have, they've done studies on this on BMI versus insulin. Now, BMI is a we can debate about how useful of a measure it is, but in general, it reflects body fat in the average population, not in lifters, but in the average, uh, BMI, by the way, for people who are listening is a, a ratio of your, your height versus your weight that generally reflects obesity. And you're obese. I'm and obese. I'm obese. Yes, I'm, yeah. 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 I'm so if you lift weights and, and you I have, are both yeah, obese. <laughs> I'm, I'm morbidly obese. <laughs> it seems so silly. Dude. It is. But if you look at the general population who doesn't exercise, it's actually pretty darn accurate. Um,
2: gets they, factored into your insurance, though, which is not yeah, Does it really do yours? yours? It yeah. That's it hilarious. Does. Yeah, it yeah. Sucks. They look at you and say you're Some, obese. Yeah. Some insurances <laughs> will do like a waist chest measurement,
1: which, mm. which helps. But mm. anyway, so postprandial insulin, they've looked at the relationship between people who have their BMIs and postprandial insulin. They find that people with higher BMI have higher postprandial insulin. But the opposite relationship does not hold true. Hmm. People who have higher insulin do not necessarily have higher BMI, and they've done this in meta-analysis. So what that says is, again, that if you are obese, type 2 diabetic metabolic syndrome profile, that you will have elevated levels of insulin because your body is becoming insensitive to it because of all the dysfunction that we talked about. Um, but just because you secrete higher insulin um, doesn't mean that you're going to have more body fat. And there was a study done actually by one of the proponents of the carbohydrate-insulin uh, Hypothesis um, that looked at what 's called Mendelian randomization, where basically the idea is you have different gene variants like we were talking about, and if, for example, like they 've done this with LDl cholesterol uh, or sorry yes LDl cholesterol, we believe most people believe that LDL cholesterol has some contribution towards heart disease it's a pretty i would say it's a pretty strong now people can over very
2: controversial oh. Uh, Okay, very context-dependent so and, and individual. When
1: they look mm-hmm. at these these gene variants, people who have gene variants where they run lower LDL have lower rates of, of heart disease. People who are higher, higher rates yeah, of heart disease. Gene variance, yeah. If you look at that with insulin, at best, insulin explains 10% of obesity. At, at absolute best. And that study actually showed a high level of bias. It was between 1% to 10%. So... We're not. I'm not putting out the, the idea that maybe
2: insulin has some effect. You're talking about fasting insulin or postprandial insulin.
1: Uh, overall,
2: overall, I, okay. I'm, I'm guessing probably more so fasting. How do they um, measure insulin? I mean, we we have hemoglobin h one c for like a you know. That, so there that's was another
1: there was another meta-analysis where they looked at um, higher carb versus lower carb diets, equating calories, looking at HBA1c, and saw that. So the, the, the differences in weight loss were no different, like we've discussed, when calories are equated, but also the differences in HbA1c reduction weren't different. They were the same. Now, you asked about health and, you know, consuming some of these, quote unquote, mm-hmm. bad Pop, foods, Pop-tarts, if you do it in the, but you, you said in the context of a caloric surplus, right, which is the important thing, because they help to create a surplus. But in a deficit, um, what, what's the downside? Because... Kind of when you talk to people who are not not ketogenic necessarily, but proponents of quote-unquote clean eating, which again has no real objective definition. When you say, okay, well, a Pop-Tart, maybe you can lose weight on it, but it can't be good for you. Okay, well, then, then we have to have some objective measurement to show this by, right? Because like, otherwise it's do you believe in magic, okay? So if you look at processed foods, what they have found with processed foods is that you have a lower energy expenditure from them. Okay, so you have a certain amount of what we call TEF, thermic effective food. Uh, Higher protein has a higher TEF than carbohydrate and fat. Okay, so we know that higher protein diets actually cause more weight loss and better lean body mass retention. Part of that is through the the increased thermogenesis of of the TEF, thermic effective food. Well, with processed foods, you have a lower TEF. Okay, but that doesn't mean you can't eat any processed foods and, and lose weight. You can, it just means you might have to eat a little bit lower calories overall.
2: Does yeah. that make sense? If there was a ketogenic Pop-Tart and it was made <laughs> with, uh, with it almond probably tastes flour, like shit. <laughs> we know that if we eat almonds, we're probably, you know, or other nuts or things. Just giving an example. You know, we don't uh, fully digest, assimilate, and utilize those calories they pass through us. So Some. with a Pop-Tart, uh, I think it's pretty high with like raw – like. Like a salad and with nuts and things like that. Like it, it becomes significant over time. Uh, with a Pop-Tart, like you can basically 100% of that is going into your system and it's causing a hormonal response. So the food that we eat creates uh, – is not only calories but creates a hormonal Uh, response. And also from the brain perspective can change the neuropharmacology of your brain. I mean, that's how I got into the ketogenic diet because it fundamentally changes neurotransmitter systems and reward systems and things like that.
1: Right. But hormones, people get so hung up on hormones. And, and if you look at the research data, it just doesn't support it. Like with insulin and whatnot. Now in terms of like losing weight and your, your, what happens with leptin and ghrelin and all those kinds of things, that is a huge, one of the, one of the things we talked about before the podcast started, we had about a 30-minute podcast yeah, before we, did we actually – <laughs> podcast outside. About, yeah. nice. <laughs> um, you know, people say things like uh, – One of the reasons people are really mistrustful of kind of the calories in, calories out model is because it is viewed as a two isolated variables. Calories in and calories out are separate. That's not true. Calories in affects calories out. Okay? They're a moving target. So people will say, well, I ate in a calorie deficit and I didn't lose weight. No, you ate in what you thought was a calorie deficit and you didn't lose weight. But if you didn't lose weight, it was not a calorie deficit by definition. Okay. So Unless you're we,
2: retaining water or something.
1: Yeah. 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 When we look at um, dieting, like just dieting in general, over time lowers your metabolic rate. Right. So if you take somebody, they actually did a rat study. Again, rats. But rats tend to respond pretty similar to humans in terms, would you agree with that in terms of blood glue? I mean, you do a lot of rats. I do
2: a lot of rats and mouse studies. Uh, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of a good model. overlap there. Yeah. They're a good, model. Good, good.
1: So again, but we have to put that out there because we want to, we don't want to oversell it. They did a um, depends on the context of what you're studying. Of course. It, yeah. yeah. Like you it don't want to do, you don't want to do, questions do questions like animal studies can be helpful, but you don't want to do like a, an insulin study in cows because cows are ruminants and yeah. they're, they don't care about insulin. Anyway, they took rats. They took them through two diet cycles. Okay, so this is kind of back to the yo-yo dieting thing. Um, and they looked at, okay, when they took obese rats, dieted them down to a kind of normal level, then they, let, then they basically gave them as much food as they wanted, let them eat back to the original obese level, dieted them down again to the previous level, and then let them re-eat back up. What they found was absolutely astonishing. Their food efficiency went so far up because their metabolic rate became suppressed every time they dieted down. Your body has this self-defense system that you activate every time you diet. I talk about this in my Shameless Plug book. Um, So the first time they dieted, if that's the kind of one times rate that they lost uh, fat at, when they let them regain it, they regained it twice as fast as they lost it. Then the second time they tried to lose it, they lost it at half the original rate. Then when they regained it the second time, they regained it three times as fast. Their food efficiency went way up. Did yeah. their ability to lose it Have, you noticed, have you noticed as well? What's that? Yeah, Did their so,
0: ability to lose it get uh, exponentially what is, what is, faster as well?
1: No. No, they're, they're, no. It, it, it took them twice as long to lose oh. the same amount of weight. Sorry, I, I probably didn't explain it very well. Yeah, it took them twice as long to lose the same amount of weight, and they regained it in a third the time of the original. So your body's getting accustomed to famine. Exactly, because every time you diet, and we see this with yo-yo dieters who spend... How many people do you know that seem to be perpetually on a diet, yeah. but they just have that short overfeeding period in between diets and it then they, it, it really does because yeah. every time you diet, you're activating your body's self-defense system. How many fighters do you know that every time they diet, it gets harder and harder for them to mm-hmm. make weight?
0: Well, they're doing more than that. They're, they're cutting weight. The cutting weight is ruthless. They're, they're right. essentially
1: almost dying. Right. And- but the part of that is they're, they're having to crash diet super low. So what is the signal you're telling your body? Because you have to always think about things from an evolutionary perspective. My Ph.D. advisor was great about this. He'd always ask me. His name was Dr. Don Lehman, brilliant guy. And he would say, why do you think the body did this? Well, if you think about what are the regulatory mechanisms of becoming fat versus becoming too thin, right? So one, one danger is you starve to death. The other danger is you get so fat that a predator can come get you. Which is more dangerous in the last... 20,000 years it's famine it's famine so your body creates much tighter self defense system there so when you diet your metabolic rate slows way down I mean if you've you've ever these guys who cut weight so by the time they're ready to get a fight for example their metabolic rate's really slow then what happens after they they fight they eat a crap ton of food because their ghrelin is way up leptin is way down insulin is way down and they regain it really fast. Now what I think happens- it's
2: safe to assume just to interject that if you diet for 16 weeks for a show, for example, or a contest, or that anything. what what you uh, actually educated me in like 10 years ago and I thought there was this like post contest rebound, and in two weeks, there'd be this anabolic window or whatever. You're anabolic for fat. <laughs> it actually, if you diet hard for 16 weeks to make weight, it takes an equal amount of time to get your metabolism back actually, up to that level again. Oh, well, maybe. So, Lane coined the term, right? Reverse dieting. Rever- yeah. I don't know if I, call, I we, coined it. We, we I probably didn't coin it. study this with metabolic chambers in rats and, and use a variety of different approaches to determine how fast it, it actually takes. To, uh, to bring your metabolism back up and, and if different strategies can be used to ramp up your metabolism. Well, it.
1: because when you regain it, you regain fat really quickly, um, but your metabolic rate is more sluggish to return. So they actually did a study with the, the biggest loser participants. And this is why I'm so big on what, what is sustainable. That yeah. It has to be sustainable. They looked at um, – so they lost on average like uh, – Quite a bit of weight. I can't remember the exact numbers, but they lost a bunch of weight over the thirty weeks because they starve them and they exercise the crap out of them, and they saw that their metabolic rate um, dropped five hundred calories more than you would predict just by the amount of body fat and lean body mass they lose. This is what's called metabolic adaptation
0: when when you define metabolic rate dropping, what do you yep. mean by that? what's the
1: so so you have. So we can calculate all this stuff. So your overall total daily energy expenditure, your TDEE, is made up of your basal metabolic rate, which is what you burn, like what we're doing right now, just like sitting around doing nothing.
2: Oxygen consumption, CO2 production. Yeah. Too, actually, get, actually to, be,
1: to be real, it's just laying down doing nothing. So basically the energy you burn keeping the lights on, right? Okay. That's one component. It's about 50 to 60% in most people. Then you have your NEAT. Which is like this, like I'm moving my hands, I'm ambulatory movement, non-voluntary movement. This stuff will actually go down when you diet. Like if you've ever been around movement people. movement
2: will go down. Yes. You stop fidgeting. Spontaneous stop, movement yeah, goes down. It's a yeah.
1: huge modifier. So like if you look at, I did a DVD when I was prepping for a show back in 2010. I blink slower. I'm not kidding you, and I talk wow. slower. I, yeah,
2: you like must, I, your mind was. You were like slower. on Valium. It looked yeah. like you're and you're you're right now. I'm all hyped up on in you the, know. in the life of Lane with that yeah. series of cool series.
1: Oh, absolutely! Like your your so your the body. This is your body. Ketogenic
2: diet would help you.
1: So, ah! so when you think about so there's neat That's that. Then right. your exercise activity, which is intuitive, that's how many calories you burn exercising. And then there's what's called the thermic effect of food, which we already discussed, how much energy required to get energy out of food. Okay? And all those add up to your total daily energy expenditure. And we can predict, based on equations, how, what your metabolic rate should be. So these people, their metabolic rate was 500 calories a day lower than it should have been just based off the weight they lost. Because if you lose muscle and you lose fat you have less weight to carry around, right? So your metabolic rate goes down just from that, but it goes down way more than it should. That is your, the first prong of your body's self-defense system to stop you from starving yourself, is to become more efficient. We hear the word efficiency and we think, wow, that, that's a good thing. Think about if your body fat levels were a gas tank and you, ha- you had a car, okay? You would not want to be efficient, right? You right. would to have one of the old Suburbans that was like half a mile per gallon, right? You don't want the Prius, because you can go way longer. So going back to that study on rats, they became so much more efficient with their food. And this is the second prong of your body's self-defense system is to not only slow down your metabolic rate while you're dieting, but to start activating systems that deal with restorage once you actually start overeating again. Have you ever done a long diet or known somebody who did it and then they start eating again? It's like everything sticks to you. It's like you just, it's like you're like, how did I gain five pounds from one day? And people are like, oh, it's water. Well, water doesn't stay around for six months, so it's not water. That is your body preparing all these systems. So even like enzymes that deal with fat storage while you're dieting actually go up because it's preparing your body for restorage. And then, even probably the most interesting thing is, so it this
2: all falls back on the importance of tracking macros, which yeah, well, is completely ignored with guys coming off of a fight or fitness competitors. Right, you don't like just want to so, let yourself blow up really so quickly. It's, it's a myth that your body is set up to be anabolic or to gain muscle. Well, that it is you're for, you're for set fat. up for fat.
1: Yeah. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, the way most people diet. Which is this kind of I mean, you know, uh, you've probably been around people who do this yo-yo stuff. It's it's a lot of people Yeah, they, they pick the next fad diet. Whatever's popular. They do it They lose some weight and then they regain it. My dad lost 30 pounds on the ketogenic diet regain 50 right now The real problem is Did in he track the, his macros now. He does <laughs> But the real problem and he's down 30 pounds again, but the real problem is If we used to think adipose tissue was like a sponge, right? So if you t- ate too much you just threw more in there right soaked up extra nutrients and then if you started if you were in a caloric deficit you were losing weight it just gave up some of its nutrients you know like the guy who fasted for 365 days and didn't die because he had so much so much fat we now know that body fat fits every definition of a of an in the endocrine system it's a tissue it is an actual organ Because it sends out hormonal signals, it integrates hormonal signals, it talks to the brain, the hindbrain, the arcuate nucleus. It is integrated in all of metabolism in a big way. And typically, you have, the way we gain fat or lose fat is based on the fat cell size. So you have a set number of fat cells, and they either expand or they shrink. Pretty intuitive. Unless, now, you can create more fat cells if you become so obese that you literally can't stuff any more fat in there right? So obese people have fat cell hyperplasia a lot of times. What's really interesting is people at the end of a diet, when, you're, when your thyroid hormone is lower, your sympathetic nervous system tone is lower, this unique hormonal milieu, if you overfeed too rapidly, there's a researcher named McLean out of Colorado that actually that showed that you can actually increase your fat cell number if you overfeed too rapidly right after a diet. Now this was in rats, full disclosure, but... It, it was thing. fascinating stuff. You're increasing so the total. now you're increasing your body's, but it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Right, your body's like shit. We had this famine. We don't want to deal with this shit again. We want to make sure that we can store as much stuff as possible. So we're going to create some new. This dude is rapidly overfeeding. We're going to create some new fat cells to make sure we're not going to miss any of this energy. We're going to capture every single bit of it.
0: I like what you're saying, and it makes a lot of sense. You're you're talking about weight loss and weight gain, but you were specifically discussing hormonal changes in the body due to the ketogenic diet that are beneficial and that these hormonal changes and the changes to the way that the brain functions would be uh, a benefit of following that diet versus just
2: working on calories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's that... That book I gave you, the complete book of ketones, <laughs> by Dr. Mary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Yay! laughs> so, uh, so that I don't think it's track. actually out yet. Contest uh, prep guide. Yeah. I want to get jacked. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so ketones I'm are handsome man on there. A yeah. uh, <laughs> there are sort of by definition have a metabolic superiority as a as a fuel source. You know, and they readily cross the blood-brain barrier. They can largely replace glucose as a primary energy source in your brain under periods of fasting uh, or ketogenic diet. So that that offers a lot of advantages to someone dieting because it makes you resilient. Like the guy that fasted three hundred and eighty-two days, his glucose was was like thirty and dipped down to twenty. Uh, that would be universally fatal for most people. But his ketones were elevated, so he did not feel hunger. So that that is tr- – like the Cahill studies, George Cahill uh, studies at Harvard Medical School where they fasted subjects for 40 days. They injected insulin to increase – What uh, IRB did
1: that get passed? <laughs> yeah,
2: I remember presenting this at Lane's camp a while back. Uh, and I – when I – you know, read this study. I had to call him on the phone. He was living, he passed away in 2012, but we had a number of conversations before he passed away. And I was amazed that he got ethics approval to do that because it's basically like killing someone, injecting 20 IUs of insulin. But what was fascinating that they were asymptomatic for hypoglycemia at a level of hypoglycemia that's typically universally fatal. And they were also uh, very cognitively uh, lucid, And that was a dramatic demonstration at the time. It was thought that, you know, the brain could only use glucose. So this is a paradigm shift in the way uh, we understand sort of fuel utilization, particularly in the brain. So that has major – and I can go kind of on and talking about the different applications of the ketogenic diet, which I did on the first podcast, but from a a perspective of someone dieting to lose weight – dieting as a lifestyle doing intermittent fasting the ketogenic diet makes intermittent fasting much easier because your brain's adapted to it that for me had tremendous uh practical applications that allowed me i feel to excel through academia i was able to do a lot more work not get hungry and uh, and you know we haven't trained in a while, but when we trained, last time we He's did deadlifts. I mean, we were both deadlifting 675 for reps. And I was on, actually, I was on the, the, uh, the classical ketogenic diet mm-hmm. then. That's when I was just doing it. And it, you know, I would a year. Classical versus? Like 80 to 90% fat. You know, I was doing that fat. for about a year. Super high fat. And, um, you know, deadlifting like three times my body weight for, for reps, you know, and, and it didn't hurt me. I can't say that would be the case for everyone, but I also titrated the calories in that I wasn't really at a calorie deficit. I, I lost a little bit of weight. So I guess by definition, I was at a yeah, calorie so, deficit. Now, for people that are thinking about gains, they trying to gain weight, they would think that the
0: ketogenic diet, that 80-90% fat would not be enough protein.
2: I believe that the ketogenic diet shines when you are in a calorie deficit. I, my mentor for the cancer work, Tom Saifred, had published a study showing an unrestricted ketogenic diet can actually promote cancer growth in a a brain tumor model. Unrestricted, meaning too much calories? Yeah, they were feeding mice a sugary ketogenic formula that was on the market at the time. Well, it was a sweetened, I'm sorry, it was a sweetened ketogenic formula (laughs) with hydrogenated (laughs) fats and and other things. Yeah, it was uh, was sweetened with maybe with uh, aspartame or something Mm -hmm. like that. So they, they, mice tend to overeat it. And when they overeat it, you know, it creates a plethora of metabolic abnormalities, and uh, but and you also get those same abnormalities when you overeat carbs. You do. Mm. See, here's me
1: being you, you do. Um, Just
0: as a side note, how much does it drive you guys crazy when you hear about this fat acceptance thing, or fat is healthy? When you, you is, to is, be fat? Yeah, there's so be. much of this going around do today. We to my... see massively well, over obese people. And they're, they're trying to say it's okay, it's fine. You're well, healthy. Well, there's football
2: players, right? I mean, by definition, they're pretty healthy. I mean, they they lift, they train. Uh, metabolically, their blood work kind of looks okay. Well, so. they have guts, but they're not yeah. morbidly obese. I-, I might obese. surprise you
1: with my answer. Okay.
2: Uh, so uh, we talked about this
1: earlier. I'll take the heat. I'm a libertarian. So if somebody says I'm fat and I'm happy and I like my life and I know what the risks are, then I say knock yourself out. I- I'm not me for to judge what makes somebody else happy, but now the problem is if if you complain about being fat then you got to do something about it. Otherwise, you're yeah. not going to have any patience for and that. And it goes
0: back to the discipline issue.
1: Right. But you can be fit, but fat. Yes. Because yeah. you, sure. you have morbidly obese people. Like I said, if you lose 10% of your body weight, there's, there's overweight people who run marathons. Oh, you yeah. Burt pressure. Yeah. You can't tell me they're not in shape. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no. For
0: so, sure. It's just, you're just carrying extra it, weight.
1: I mean, look at Daniel Cormier. He's not obese. He's not obese. But he has some. He's fat. He's no, Don't come get me, Dan. Listen. Like, uh, I'm, when I'm, Daniel I'm,
0: fought Stepe Miochik, he was more than forty pounds over his fighting weight as a light heavyweight champion, and he was actually heavier than Stepe. But and and, you and know, it serves and a practical. He's a good function. friend of mine. But yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, but
0: but round. that is
1: but. Performance is not the same thing as aesthetics. Let me tell you what. He's in tremendous shape. When I looked like that, I looked amazing. You felt like shit. I felt like shit. You were ready to pass out, right? Like Literally, for me to stand up was – I remember being on the couch, and there was a stupid – some show on. (laughs) Get on biolane.com. There was a stupid show on TV, and the remote was like – this goes back to neat. There was a remote over there, like five feet away. I sat and watched the whole show because I just didn't feel like getting the fucking remote. So. Um, Isn't but, it
0: ironic because you look so good? Like when you jacked like that, you look like you just fucking run oh, forever I, I can't.
1: and break through walls. Now, there, there is a threshold, like, you know, some of the. Like Ray Williams, who is the world's best power lifter, I mean, he looks obese. Dude squats legit 1,080 pounds. Isn't that an issue, though, with powerlifters,
0: though? A good percentage of them carry around a lot Uh, of body fat. It's
1: not as much as you would think anymore. Like in the super heavyweights, yes, because, like, for example, the IPF, which is kind of the IOC-recognized powerlifting federation that I compete in, um, they're cut off for super heavyweights 265. So if you're going to be a super heavyweight, you might as well just be 350, you know? Who's that dude, Jamie? That's Ray. Um, That's that's Ray. Ray. Look at
0: the look at the bar bending, dude. That's That's he's a beast. He's a beast. Shout out, Ray, gentleman.
1: Super nice guy. Uh, Blaine Sumner, another one. But like when I hit hit my squat record of six sixty eight at two hundred five pounds, I mean I was in pretty good shape for that. But for me to get to like eight percent body fat, no problem. For me to get from eight percent and I'm calipering, so, Mm but for me me to get from eight percent to three percent, it's a fucking nightmare. Your body. Again, Did you really
0: get down to three? On calipers. Calipers. Yeah. So, what do you think that would be if you floated?
1: No, there are no actual uh, accurate measures of body fat. That's the. Uh, that's a, what? Not really. Like, relatively within themselves, they're accurate. It's dependent upon hydration and well, a bunch people, of other factors. Yes. So people, not to make too much of a side tangent, but people look at DEXA, dual X ray absorption technology, and they say, oh, that's the gold standard. DEXA is actually really finicky. Like, I remember dexing rats in studies. We do it in duplicate. So we do it twice. And sometimes you would have, like, differences just dexing the same rat twice. It depends on the machine, your hydration status, because water. If you want to gain, you know what the best way to gain eight pounds of lean body mass within five minutes? Go do a dexa, then drink a gallon of water. Go back, do another dexa. You'll be eight pounds lean body mass heavier.
2: You can impress Mm. your friends.
1: Because it's a two-compartment model.
2: Get more lean body mass. It's Uh, a two-compartment
1: model. Same thing with calipers. It's only measuring your amount of fat tissue. So anything that's not fat is lean body mass. Mm. So if you guys are using that to track progress, if anybody uses that to track progress, it's only accurate relative to the measurement. So your calipers mean nothing for what your DEXA measurement is going to be and vice versa. I see. But the change, like if I'm dexing if I'm calipering... uh, Consistently at 10% and then it drops to eight and then seven and I can be relatively confident that I'm losing body fat same thing for DEXA but you have to do it at the same time of day same hydration status all that kind of stuff and I don't really use DEXA because people in order to get it accurate you'd have to use it like every day. For it to be
2: actual relative. I mean, you use pictures, right? So when he was dieting yeah. and got to we, a certain point, off here, but
1: like, okay. <laughs> I looked
2: at him, I was like, okay, yeah, like stop there. But <laughs> then he would go for another and, and get to a level where I he looked very gaunt. I mean, you looked, yeah. but what looks good there, like seeing him in person, like I knew yeah, his this personality look... was changing. I mean, yeah. it was kind of freaky, disgusting looking towards the end. <laughs> Uh, and many people who maybe follow the sport but don't compete don't really realize what the difference between 5% or 6% and 3% is. Yeah, so, so that separates the competitors from the, the, and that's bro, your, the
1: bros online. That you're <laughs> really fighting evolution at that point because yeah. mm-hmm. your body is trying to – you're close to starvation, literally. Your body's yeah. trying to keep you from doing that. So like you think about food all the time. You actually become – so a friend of mine, uh, Chris Foss, who I, he's a professor now. Uh, he was doing his PhD at the same time as me. And him, my other friend, uh, Dr. Jeremy Lineke, and Dr. Lindy Rousseau, Chris's wife, Chris was doing a contest prep, and I prepped him for the show. And it was a six-month study of – he's a natural bodybuilder, so drug-free. And they looked at the hormonal responses, his weight, his body fat, and even like uh, measures of mood. Chris and is like the this most. This guy was
2: a beast yeah. too. Like 260 or something? I mean, oh, nat- no, natural two, drug-free two, bodybuilder. Two, right? 220
1: in the off-season, about 190 on contest. Okay,
2: he did look like but he was
1: he, Yeah, he's a big guy. Yeah. But he's like a very mellow dude. By the end, his mood measurements were measuring like that of a Psychopath. Really? Yeah, it and just his, changes your mood that his, much. What well, you've, been, you've probably metabolic... been around fighters who, like, they get, when they get that lean, it's just like.
0: They can barely talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what, think about,
1: wh- think about like, they're actually, like, trying to peek for a fight at the same time they feel the most yeah, like it's, shit.
0: It's ridiculous.
1: They're so focused on cardio. They can't even. I'm not want to make, just into a. Yeah.
0: They're, they're but, focused on just dehydration. Yeah. And, and just making that weight.
1: I've seen some of the, the protocols. I've, there's some good ones out there, but I, some of the stuff I've seen, I'm like, God, I wish I could talk to somebody in that. In that realm, because it's so it's, it's so not much pro science, it's so
0: dangerous too, and it's yeah. it's really you can only do it three or four times, and then your body starts to reject it, and these guys have to go up and wait. Like you were well, talking about, we explained to you yeah. why, yeah,
1: yeah. And, I mean, some, and guess what happens when that. they go up and wait? Sometimes, yeah, they start crushing it.
0: Yeah, they know? do. They do
2: much better. So his testosterone, right, went yeah. plummeted, but his his basal requirements, his calorie yeah, requirements, so was like twelve hundred. The crazy right? thing is,
1: um, so there have been some critics of my my kind of uh, view of metabolic adaptation in the body's self-defense system, full, full disclosure. Some people criticize me about that. They say, well, if you look at metabolic adaptation, it only explains, uh, it's only a 15% adaptation relative to the, the whole adaptation. And, uh, but if you look at Chris's numbers, I think on average, that's probably right. On an average diet with an average person, you take somebody trying to get really lean or somebody who yo-yo diets or somebody who crash diets. And now, you know, if again, it's proportionate. If you challenge your body with something extreme, it's going to respond in an extreme fashion. So every case study we have on natural bodybuilders, and there's about 10 of them now, who look at their contest preparation and coming out of it. And I use them just because this is the realm I grew up in. Shows that they're hypogonadal by the time that they're at stage.
0: Hypogonadal mean their balls are
1: shrinking? No, their testosterone is clinically low. Yeah. Naturally. And these are guys like me. I actually run, I actually like have a pretty naturally high testosterone level. Like when every, every time ever since I'm 16 years old, when I've got tested, I've been like over 800 if I'm eating enough. When I was at contest, I was under 300. This is part of how your body fights you. Your body does not want you to be that lean. But if you're kind of reining this back into the discussion, this is why I talk about why it's so important to pick something that's sustainable for you as an individual, because if you do this shit, where you yo-yo diet or you don't come out of it appropriately, it will fuck you up. I mean, we've we've all I we, think females especially know oh, a lot of track records. Like I it. I I've worked with a lot of females now because especially in physique sports, there's a lot of really bad coaching. Starvation diets then well, For
0: women it's it just messes with your reproductive cycle too, right? Mm-hmm. You yeah. Stop having periods. Yeah yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Which amenorrhea in of itself doesn't seem to have amenorrhea? necessarily What is
2: that? Uh, no menstrual cycle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So doesn't necessarily in of itself seem to be a um, have negative health consequences in terms of longevity or disease Overall. or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, if you you, you can't get pregnant, I mean, that's a right. big deal for some women. But what the, what the women don't want to hear is you may have to gain some body fat to get that back. You know, they don't right. want to hear that. But this is why, like, I really start with sustainability, and then from there, I go to okay. What so if we have got what's sustainable for you now can we get a little bit better can we do a little bit more fiber like i think in general you know i criticize paleo diets because i think their validation for their model is absolutely fucking stupid what but, validation is that oh the kind of the evolutionary validation and the fact that we didn't drink milk and we didn't eat beans and this kind of thing didn't but, coffee but but the question shouldn't be what we were doing. The question should be what makes sense and what is healthy now. Like if you look at studies on dairy, almost all studies show people who take in dairy are healthier, better bone density, more lean body mass, lower body fat. But isn't there
0: are there a lot of people that think that dairy is bad for you? Because yeah. Dairy causes yeah. inflammation. Mostly vegans.
1: But is that really? There are, uh, so, some, some, uh, some like clean eaters too think that yeah. dairy somehow causes the, – the research data actually – yeah, well, really. there's, there's the exact
2: protein opposite. in dairy, uh, various proteins that uh, alpha lactalbumin or yep. beta. Uh, that can in whey, basically yeah. initiate a an immune response in the body. So I know when I I'm okay with dairy fat. I can get like you know 100 grams a day of dairy fat. But if I'm if I drink a whey protein shake, especially at night, I wake up all congested and you know like I have an. Is allergy that a pure whey concentrate? Uh, whey, yeah, whey concentrate it, or just like. Uh, You know, a yogurt or – and I think it's a spectrum, right? So it's not like you have it or you don't. I think, you know, there's this this spectrum and bovine protein is kind of viewed uh, foreign to the body. I mean once it enters the bloodstream, it it can. It's only if it enters the
1: bloodstream because if digestion is working properly – you're not going to get any of that in the bloodstream. It's all going to be chewed up into
2: monodipe and tripeptides. Some of it makes, I mean, like now, insulin's of fifty amino acid. And if you take enough insulin, like you can basically go hypoglycemic if you orally consume 80. it. That's why you in, inject. 50, I think it's 80, 80. I Think it's eighty-one anyway uh, well it doesn't matter short yeah. i short, teach you, right? Right? yeah yeah it's so short. yeah so even something that's uh, you know 50 amino acids now or i have more to know this. Can, can get through so um, the, this this term lactose intolerance do you think well that's do you think that that's, is? Actually that's actually an enzyme that, that's that actually is, an that's enzyme. a sugar yeah,
1: yeah. so this so, is
0: a, an issue with people's individual dietary systems so some people
1: have uh, alpha lactalbumin sensitive sensitivity where they um, if they've got some kind of leaky gut so normally you're you're your injunctions are, are tight. Okay, so your your small intestine or your intestines are like kind of fingers and they pick up nutrients. This is, I'm really generalizing. The
2: epithelial cells, the tight yeah. junction is a little yeah. little anchor that holds them. If something's and that gets loose
1: dysfunctional yeah. with that, that can allow certain nutrients through the wall. And and that will initiate a body's immune response. Holly is uh celiac And she um, so if she has gluten, like you will know it because she will have a huge inflammatory response. But in people who have normal digestion, that just doesn't happen. Going back to the the, the paleo thing, what I was going to say is even though I, I disagree with their relevance, if you told me, okay, you take their general recommendations, eat limit sugar, eat more whole foods, eat higher protein. I think in general, that's pretty good recommendations for most people. I just, as you said, I'm anti-bullshit, so I'm not going to let you make claims about why something works when that's not why it works, right? Mm. So when we look at, like, the differences in diets, like, I think what I would say generally to pr- people is, th- here's the great news. As far as fat loss goes and health markers, if you want to lose weight, if you eat, if you control your calories, so eating eat in a calorie deficit, you eat enough protein because protein helps spare lean body mass and is thermogenic. So it increases your energy output. Um, Then you can kind of do whatever you want with carbs and fats and whatever you prefer. And you'll still lose the same amount of weight and get about all the health benefits, but it has to be something that you can sustain because if you can't sustain it, you're going to put all that weight back on. That's what the research data shows. So, Dumb, S- loves sustaining it meaning do having it for a life.
0: balanced diet that you could stick with versus do it for life. some sort of calorie deficit that's really only a temporary thing to lose weight.
1: Right. So now obviously you don't you can't eat in a deficit forever, right. right? Because then you would starve yourself to death. Right. But the body corrects that. Like you as you drop body weight, your metabolic rate slows down. You're not in a calorie deficit forever. When we talk about losing weight and then maintaining it, right? So eating in a maintenance. So eating basically the behavior you use and the style of dieting you use, you have to continue that if you want to maintain it. So if you like ketogenic, like you like ketogenic, you like ketogenic, mm-hmm. and I think you're a big fan of meat. <laughs> if you can sustain that, you know, like people out there say, oh my God, people probably tell you, you're going to get cancer and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Most of those health benefits are just from not having excess body fat, excess body fat and the metabolic dysregulations of a metabolic type syndrome. That's what caused 90% of these problems. Okay,
0: now- Which is why I get crazy when people say that fat is healthy.
1: Well, it, well, here's the problem. It's like we, we have like reactionary culture. So we have- Depends where your set point is too though. Right, we, right. Have, we have reactionary culture. So you see this all the time. Mm-hmm. So we had, okay, you gotta eliminate saturated fat, you gotta eliminate dietary fat, and just eat grains, And limit your proteins and we got fatter and so the reaction to that was don't eat any carbs saturated fat isn't bad for you in fact eat as much saturated fat as you can it's great put butter in your coffee like no there's good data to show that the research data that I've seen in my opinion shows that saturated fat absolutely was demonized it's not as bad as we thought but it's if you eat too much of it, it's not great either, especially with carbohydrates. Oh, absolutely, that's absolutely. Because now you're increasing issue, your right? now you're increasing your liver production of saturated fats as well.
0: Right. When your body gets to a fat burning stage, and then on top of that, you pile on carbohydrates, then your body wants to store those carbohydrates as well with a calorie surplus. Well, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> actually, you more technically, you store the fats. You store the fats. Yeah, because yeah. carbohydrate,
0: you burn the carbohydrates and store them.
1: Right. Fat. So carbohydrate. If you say, well, why does, if you don't store, so I talk about this in my book, because people will go too far to each direction and say, well, you said you don't, you only, you, you hardly store any carbohydrate as actual fat. Why don't we eat zero fat and mostly carbohydrate? Well, then your body, you know, your body's not dumb. Your body, we didn't, you didn't get here today and get through evolution and tens of thousand years of hard, you know, living by your body being stupid. So your body can ramp up de novo lipogenesis so that you can create fat from carbohydrate if fat gets low and carbohydrate intake gets Except high enough. essential fatty acid you need but from your diet. But there was a research study, or a meta-analysis done by Kevin Hall, who's an NIH researcher, and they showed that if you equate calories, you get a small extra benefit from fat restriction versus carb restriction on fat loss. So you get about 26 grams extra fat loss per day, calories equated, uh, protein equated, if you restrict fat versus carb. Now, before everybody goes crazy, that's probably due to a little bit of inefficiencies in ramping up de novo lipogenesis because there's, it takes energy to move that system. But 26 grams of, of fat loss per day, to me, is not a physiological, like, I don't care about that. that. That's nothing compared to, okay, if you like low carb better, don't worry about losing an extra 26 grams of fat. If you like low carb better and you can sustain that, then do low carb.
0: One of the things that we seem to be getting into here is the difference between losing weight and optimal performance, and then optimal performance mentally and hormonally versus optimal performance physically in terms of like athletic athletic pursuits.
2: So here's here's something I'll I'll, and 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 the type of person whether it's you know you don't want to put a a teenager that's you know playing football on a ketogenic diet necessarily. Uh, Why would that be? Well, maybe if they were overweight, that, that could be beneficial, but I think it would decrease his performance unless he goes through the keto adaptation phase. But there's a lot of the, the at, at, when you're a teenager, your I would say your carbohydrate tolerance is very high. <laughs> I want to, I want to adjust this after m- you're done. My, mine, mine was very high. I could eat huge plates of pasta that I could not eat now. You know, I just simply, I couldn't, uh, So I think as we age, I would say our carbohydrate tolerance decreases with age because our metabolic machinery is not as hungry for for glucose. I mean, we're set up and hormonally, our insulin sensitivity is not as high, glycolytic pathways are reduced, things like that. That happens as a consequence of age. So it makes sense that as we transition into age for longevity and for health span, maybe not lifespan, but health span. Uh, carbohydrate restriction makes sense. And even in some cases, a ketogenic diet uh, makes sense. You know,
1: But if you look right. at the – okay, so I have two pushbacks on that.
2: And I'm not necessarily yeah. disagreeing with you. I, I kind of am.
1: <laughs> but um, if you look at longevity data, the actual longevity data, people who restrict fat versus carb live longer. Like that's what a new study that came out showed. But again, there's, there's a I'm lot – I'm describing
2: it as also a means of, of – Because people put on weight as they age with a low carb and with a ketogenic diet, that becomes a practical strategy uh, to create a sustainable calorie deficit for losing weight, sustaining that, and also if you elevate ketones over time. A lot of the new research that's coming out you know, over the last five years, ketones is not just a superior source of energy metabolically, but it also has epigenetic effects on the body. It activates gene pathways that can confer resistance against oxidative stress, the longevity pathways, anti-inflammatory pathways. But in the context of a deficit? No, not in the context of deficit. Really? You could feed ketones, take a ketone supplement, and it activates... Uh, just simply elevating beta-hydroxybutyrate functions as a histone deacetylase inhibitor and can activate, uh, if you will, uh, gene programs that can confer resistance against many different things, uh, oxidative stress pathways, and also activate or suppress an inflammatory pathway that's linked with many age-related chronic diseases and autoimmune pathways. It decreases the activation of the NLRP3 inflammasome. So when you're
0: talking about people living longer, you're talking about that epidemiology study that was like a questionnaire of people, what they ate over a long period of time, highly criticized study. Absolutely. absolutely. And and,
1: and, uh, there's a lot of co-founders, which is why I'm not a big fan. But but it's hard
0: to say. It's hard to say that the study shows that if you eat carbs versus fat, that you, you, I longer. didn't say
1: one was cause and effect. I yeah, just but you
0: it. sort of cited it no, no, as no. a piece no, no, no. of evidence.
1: Because I don't cherry pick. Because if we're going to give the argument, I want to give the whole argument. I was playing devil's advocate. I don't think that necessarily uh, if you eat a low-carb diet, it's going to cause you to live a shorter life. I don't believe that. Okay. But I think it's important to put all the data out there because what I see a lot of is people just cherry picking. And I hate that. With those,
0: those studies, they, get, they become clickbait. There's click tons of co-founders. And everybody yeah. will say, you know, eat carbs, you live here's, longer, low-fat diets are going to kill you, and then it just gets crazy and crazier. Yeah. Here's the, why yeah.
2: some of the animal work – I mean, Lane and I both did animal work. I think some of the animal work is almost more reliable because you have an inbred strain – of animal, and you have very tight control. If you They're have genetically a f- identical. Freely living human, you know, is doing many different things, and there's genetic variability. Uh, but with animals, the, it may not always be predictive. It's informative, but not always predictive. And I think some of the, the data, I read some of the human studies and become uh, more confused. But going back to the animal data, I, I'm almost more comfortable with some of these outcomes for animal studies. So... One thing I want to bring up
1: that I think is really important is we have, I think we're all getting to this point, and people out there think that there's like this perfect diet that's going to cure everything and all of our ills. The fact, the uncomfortable truth, and the fact of the matter is that if one diet is, and I don't know this specifically, but my guess is if one diet is a better for cancer, it might be worse for heart disease. Or if one diet is better for insulin resistance, Maybe it's worse for cancer. Uh, One now, diet
0: I, is better for cognitive performance. It might be worse for athletic performance.
1: We don't, we don't know. Yeah. So that's the, it's kind of where is your space at? And this is why I go back to those big picture things of most of the health benefits just come from having more muscle, lift weights. People out there, lift weights. You, if, you're, if you're debating about diets and you're not lifting weights, you are fucking missing the point okay because that is sorry i curse uh so that laughing. yeah yeah I, I do it on twitter you've seen me yes so uh it's very good at emphasizing your point yes so um i'm a it, fan of it awesome fucking awesome <laughs> so uh somebody criticized me for one day i was like you know what's great about my job i can say fuck as much as i want and nobody's gonna fire me so that is great um but the big picture things lift weights create more lean body mass be active that's a huge thing. Even if you're overweight, if you're active, you're, you're going to live fine. On the whole, you're going to live longer than than person who's inactive. Uh, and then control your weight. So if you, can eat in a, if you can get to a normal weight and maintain it, or sorry, normal body fat and maintain it, or if you're a high body fat, if you can get to a lower body fat and maintain it, ni- that's, 90, that's 95% of the battle. All this other stuff is five percent that we're worrying about, that we're going back and forth about, and that's why I don't want to miss the context. Because when people like a, I'll, I'll pick on him because he, he was who I asked for was Gary Taubes, but I'm I'm I'm, ha- I'm happier we got Dom for this. But um, I'm gonna just interject. Hang on,
2: everything. Okay. okay. Uh, wait. Wait. <laughs> so,
1: when people like Gary Taubes say things like carbs are 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 causing obesity, just carbs, you create this problem where if People don't like eating a high fat diet or a low carb diet and they can't sustain it. They just feel like they're a big failure and they just quit because what's the point? If carbs are causing fat and I can't stop eating carbs, what am I going to do? I have
0: a real hard problem with that. Well,
1: I I know what you're saying. Discipline. It's important.
0: It just sounds like nonsense.
1: But I think my point is that if you give people flexibility – it usually improves adherence. Right. And you're talking about from the standpoint of you coaching people. Right. And what I would like to see is I would like to see a diet that's protein and calorie, uh, a study protein, calorie controlled. If anybody knows of one that has done this, let me know protein and calorie controlled. And then let people self-select higher carb or higher fat. What do you prefer? Let them self-select and see how well they do. And I bet you would see improvements in adherence in both groups.
2: Dom, you were going to. Well, I think uh, a diet strategy that uh, controls your appetite and does not have your appetite controlling you, uh, which I think is accomplished with a ketogenic diet. That's also, you know, one that's a well-formulated one that controls, you know, that has fiber and adequate protein uh, is a strategy that allows you to be far less fixated on food Uh, because you're not as hungry and you could decrease your meal frequency. So if there's, I know there's people out there that are probably busy people, CEOs of companies, uh, students or whatever uh, that simply do not have time to prepare and eat uh, meals to when they get hungry. So by reducing meal frequency, you can increase your productivity. And I think you're kind of coaching your body to be a, a better fat burning. I think there's, Careful. Definitely benefits – so when you are on a ketogenic diet, you are storing more fat, but you are burning more fat. Yes. So think about your adipose tissue as little bags which have fat coming into them and fat leaving them. And the fat oxidation pathways are elevated. And when I eat a ton of fat at night before I go to bed, I am like – some people carb load. <laughs> I'm like fat loading at night. And I'm pulling off those fat stores uh, during the day through my adipose. You do this purposely? Uh, I think about it like that. So yeah. instead of just, you know, carving up at nighttime, uh, I tend to, I would wake up hungry. I would probably dump insulin and, and then wake up with a hypoglycemic cravings in the middle of the night if I did that. Do but you do I tend, time-restricted eating? Uh, yeah, like today, yeah, like I'm fasting and, and most days that I want to be as productive as possible, I will not have my first meal, which will be a, typically a ketogenic meal around 4 p.m., And And so what time do you eat at night? uh, I will start, I'll do a small meal like at work and then I'll eat my big meal at about seven o'clock, maybe seven o'clock and then snack throughout the night and maybe eat within, you know, I start eating at 4 p.m. and I finish eating at about 10 p.m. So you basically start eating at the end of your day. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's very (laughs) liberating for me. So, and I didn't even know this was possible, but that's like back 10 years ago, I didn't know it was possible to have that amount of control over my appetite and actually feel as lucid and as energetic and be able to, you know, uh, get with lane and do deadlifts with him and, and actually maintain my, my performance and my strength in the gym. I don't feel like I'm an outlier either. I think so, it's possible. So I think that
1: anecdotes are good because anecdotes cause us to look at things. Uh, but I can tell you like um, so for example I eat usually four times a day uh, and I eat protein Uh, right now I'm in a a gaining phase so I'm trying to purposely gain weight hopefully some lean body mass I'm coming back from an injury so trying to regain some of my lean body mass I'm eating about 400 to 450 grams of carbohydrate a day Um, there are times when I'll go seven, eight hours I won't eat and I don't really get hungry so I mean about
2: 16 hours
1: uh, I don't uh, I don't know I don't know. But I, I don't yeah. think I would. I go yeah. some, some nights I'll sleep and I'll wake up and I'll go 12, 13 hours. Like I'll go in sometimes and, and I don't usually get hungry. Now, but again, that's Why just... Why do you think that is? Just, uh, well, if you look at so, some of the things that I'll disagree with are, are the idea that insulin has these big fluctuations and you become hypoglycemic and that causes overfeeding. In some people, that's the case. But most people, if they're eating, a especially with a higher protein diet, that doesn't usually happen.
2: I, I want to add that the population – most people are not bodybuilders. And the population of of people that Lane mostly communicates with are on the border of being metabolically elite and also have a very high carb tolerance. If you're a bodybuilder with a, a large amount of lean body mass, you are pretty much metabolically set up to be a very – have a high carb tolerance. So The general population is not like that.
1: So let's talk about carb tolerance because I – that's one thing that we'll disagree on. I don't think that people are more or less carb tolerant. I think that people have sl- slower and faster metabolic rates. So if you have a faster metabolic rate, you'll be more to carb tolerant by default because you can just tolerate more calories.
2: I agree. But And a um, bodybuilder that's 220 sure, on, pounds on, on, like are going to be – On average, yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, if you look at somebody who's on a ketogenic diet, they're actually, by definition of carb tolerance, they're carbohydrate intolerant because if you challenge them with a bolus of glucose they can't, they can't clear it so but that that doesn't that's that's just cuz what they're adapted to right
2: but they're fat adapted yeah
1: agreed so, agreed yeah. so i actually uh, the first experimental biology we ever went to this is why you know, even scientists get this shit so wrong sometimes because they get so in their echo chamber, they don't bother
2: to look and outside of it. Going the, to the gym when we first met and went, Lane stopped and had a huge meal, which to me, I was like, what, what are we doing? We're, we're going to stop and eat before I we go to the gym. before I go squat. He eats a big, really? heavy, fatty it. meal before on the way squat. to the gym. i visit, visit the bathroom about five times, and but you know. <laughs> I didn't, I forget. I think I did eat, but it was very abnormal for me so to go eat Holly, a big meal, heavy meal on the way to the gym. Holly's like you. She, she hates training fed she wants to be
1: fasted she feels yeah. better that way but feel, that's, the individual, yeah. right? that's yeah. the individual differences right that's the individual differences part of it part of it may be you're just adapted to that as well on what you're yeah. used to so maybe a psychological thing but some people may but just
2: do better that way your blood is diverted to your digestive system and processes and that's less blood for the muscle so you're you're expending energy to that, digest break down and assimilate is, food
1: that theory has been pretty debunked really yeah. But, I, but, but something happens. I right? mean, it's just
2: a fundamental yeah. physiological a concept that you are diverting blood flow to, to yeah, blood flow for, in particular. Job of a is to question even those theories <laughs> we hold most to be true.
1: That's the, <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson said that. Yeah. But, so,
2: but it, it's, so I think a small meal actually can be beneficial. And so, but it's not like you're using no, I those agree. carbohydrates during the meal. You're not can, using the protein. Can I stop you protein. for a
1: second? Yes. How has it been debunked? Uh, that they see that performance isn't worse and that you don't like, is the, well, there's no performance specifically? So, like there's not, there's a not a, box. there's not a limitation of blood flow because you've eaten something to okay. the muscle. There's not a limitation of blood flow to the muscle. Okay. Um, but again, some people just do better if they're faster or have small meals. I, again, it may be a psychological thing, but I like to feel like, I've had a lot of food, and I'm fully fueled for a long training session. But some people but don't feel that what kind of way.
0: training, though? Like, if you're doing something well, like squats in a very controlled environment. But if you were doing something like... might be different. Yeah, if you were doing jiu-jitsu. But I don't know. You would probably throw up.
1: Maybe. I don't yeah. know. I, I did it very briefly. Awesome sport. Like, yeah. I did it very briefly informally. Awesome sport. You really
0: sport. can't have a big
2: meal and then go train. Yeah. You get I, fucked up. I'd probably have a to run to things. the bathroom
0: every few and minutes. I someplace. can't
2: work on a grant. I can't... We're not supposed to talk about guns, but if I go to the range You're and not I'm fasted, my let's talk about guns. My, a, talk well, about guns. well we happened? talked we talked a lot before. Okay, uh, my, guns. my groups are tighter. I, I really? have better control. Uh, if I go in in a fed state, I'm just not as focused. But is that like a, my vision? My yeah. vision is not as acute mm-hmm. if uh, right after a big meal as if I'm fasted sixteen hours.
1: But this is this is the hard thing with anecdote because we can't tease out whether or not that's that is an actual physiological thing or whether you just feel better. And you think you'll do better. So you do better because the brain is unbelievably powerful. There was a study and I may butcher it because I can't remember it exactly, but they they took people who had legit allergy problems and they gave them a sugar pill and they said, this will improve your allergies. It should not have done anything. Over half the people reported their symptoms got better and 30 percent actually physiologically got better because their brain was telling them get better. Mm. Like, it's pretty crazy. So that's part of probably the best diet for you might be the diet you can stick to and just feel real positive about, right? Because
0: right, so you, you feel like this might be some what's going on with a lot of this low-carb stuff that people say they feel so fantastic
2: because there's some sort of a placebo effect?
1: That's possible. I think part of it is, too, is that's that That's why you, animal you lose...
2: studies are – give me more confidence. Right. When mm. I can look at, at rats or mice on a ketogenic diet and see an objectable, you know – objective increase or decrease in a parameter, then I, I gain confidence.
1: But here's the thing. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. If you feel good about it, that's sure. great. But just don't try to get on Twitter and tell everybody, oh, you're going to gain fat right. and a deficit because you're eating carbs. Right. Shut if, up.
0: If you go to a witch doctor and you really believe it might actually help you.
1: Yes. <laughs> you know, one, of the, one of the number one uh, characteristics of cancer survivors is that they're uh, actually, they have a belief in God. They believe that they're going to make it through. That now, some people cause or effect. Some people will, may argue. Religious people may argue. Well, they believe in God, and so God is helping them. The other argument to that is, they believe that they are going to make it through there, and so they have a more better likelihood of doing it. So your brain I know is very powerful.
2: That believe in the ketogenic diet and believe in God, and I think that's a great thing. And, and they that, fly. I've, they and fly. And <laughs> they they have remarkable. I, I believe that. You know. Well, I. I I'm a person of faith, but I also believe that if you have faith in the methodology too, uh, the the patients that have communicated with me that actually believe that this approach is going to work, and then they reach that actual therapeutic state of ketogenic diet, have results that kind of defy what you would expect scientifically. So I believe it's working physiologically and also psychologically. There's immunopsychotherapy, right, or immunology. So our brain can actually control many different physiological processes, including our immune system. Yes, And, and that that is something that's underappreciated and understudied, yeah. and that really needs to be studied. Now, uh, when term, in terms of eating a large meal before
0: training, surely your body has to use up some of the resources to digest.
1: You don't think that it's blood flow to the muscles? Do sh- you think well, that's been debunked? Uh, they show that the blood flow to the muscle is not limiting if you've had a meal before you train. Okay. Now the thing is, but some people don't like that. It's a very individual thing. It probably, it may be a psychological thing with me. I'm not, I'm not, I understand that I'm an idiot like everybody else out there. Right. So I'm subject to bias and uh, psychological influence like anybody else. But I just use that to my advantage. If I feel good about it, why would I not do it?
2: Now, if, if you train in I the think, morning, do you do that? Like heading to the gym first thing in the morning. Uh,
1: Holly tries to stop me because then I usually end up going to the bathroom for like five times. But um, I'll eat a little bit less in the morning if I'm if I'm going to go straight in and train. Uh, but one of the things that that going back that so many scientists miss is that context, like. Most people miss context, but scientists even miss context. So, the first experimental biology study or first experimental biology symposium we ever went to, there was a poster where they fed people uh, a ketogenic diet or they fed them a high carb diet. And then at the end of six weeks, they challenged them with 100 grams of glucose and looked how long it took for them to clear that glucose. The ketogenic diet people would have been worse than like type 2 diabetics at clearing glucose, okay? Whereas people eating a high-carb diet cleared it just fine, right? Now, if you, if you just looked at these numbers as a doctor, you'd be like, oh, my God, you're diabetic. No, that's what they were adapted to. And I challenged the person with the poster. I said, and he, for all you ketogenic diet people who hate me on Twitter, I defend the ketogenic diet when it is time to be defended. I said to the girl, if you had fed a high-fat meal to these people, you would have seen the same thing in reverse, If you would have fed a high-fat meal to people who were out of the ketogenic diet and then a high-carb diet, you would have seen really elevated uh, triacylglycerides, Hmm. LDL cholesterol, VLDL cholesterol, chylomicrons, and people who were carb acted because it wasn't being cleared. Because that's not what you're adapted to. But people miss that whole context.
2: Lane has a good analogy in his book, that book, where if you have a, a, a factory, a military factory that's making planes, and then it has to switch over to making uh, ships, right? So you, it takes a lot of time to change sort of all the processes that take place. Uh, And the same thing is sort of happening. I mean, you're giving your body a different fuel source. So it has to ramp up the enzymatic machinery, the pathways, the regulatory pathways, and and the transporters even to basically use those fuels.
0: Yeah, and a misunderstanding of that, or at least uh, an ignorance of that, is one of the more frustrating things online when I hear, like, nonsense people, these Internet, air quote experts, talking about the negative aspects of the ketogenic diet, that they tried it and they felt weak. Like what do you mean? You tried it? You yeah. tried it for a day? Did you try it for three days? Exactly. You tried it for a month? Like get the fuck out of here! You don't Keto even know what adaptation,
2: you yeah, it's it so months. important. Like when it, when you review a study, and um, I think you have a study in your book actually that shows in the gym, you basically say the ketogenic diet can hurt your performance in the gym. So and you reference a race walking study. where I think they did the ketogenic diet for like three weeks or something like that. So, uh, I think we came back around and said that it's probably fine once you're adapted to it. Yeah. Once you're adapted to it. it, What's the time period we're talking about? For me, I did not feel myself after it took me about three to four months. But then you got to realize that there's a learning curve to doing the ketogenic diet right. So if I go back to my notes, uh, I mean, my performance in the gym and just general well-being took about three to four months.
0: Do you use an app to chart Uh, your meals or anything?
2: I did uh, my fitness pal and stuff, but I just know I'm a creature of habit. So I, we basically just buy the same food all the time, and I can I measure things on scales and stuff just as a scientist. So I can look at some powder on a scale and do 250 milligrams just plus or three. minus, you know, <laughs> ten, ten milligrams. So I, I've measured things out to where I can look at a plate and basically give you the macros pretty tight. Well, and well, that's, I don't know if you do that. Have you, yeah. have you ever
1: done keto for long periods of time? Uh, I've done it before. Yeah. And it, he long hasn't long.
2: been keto adapted though. I would argue. I had ketones
1: yeah. in my, in my, but, but I just, how I, long did you do it for? Uh, about eight weeks. So you could argue that I didn't do it long enough, but my thing is like all my blood markers are healthy. Um, I didn't see, so I did keto at maintenance and I didn't see really much improvement in anything. Everything kind of stayed the same. Now what, what, what did, different energy? When, wise? when was uh, this? What year was this? This would have been probably after my bodybuilding show, but before I got back into powerlifting. Okay. So it would have been sometime in like 2012-ish.
2: Did like, you like post about it and stuff? I want to go. Not back really, because I, I okay. didn't. I didn't want to really
1: like get the wrath of anybody on me at the time. I'm <laughs> just now trying I, it. Now I'm old and cantankerous. I just don't care that much anymore. <laughs> but um, I didn't. My performance didn't go down that. Much. In the first few weeks, it did, but then it was Makes fine. Yeah. I just like the flexibility of having some carbs. Yeah. I liked having that flexibility because if Land you're gonna,
2: popcorn. I remember it. Yes, I do.
1: If you, you know, popcorn is great though because <laughs> it, it actually is, has it higher is. protein and higher fiber. Yeah. But, um, you know, if, if I was going to commit to it as a lifestyle, then that would be fine. But unless you're willing to – again, if that's not something you're willing to stick to for life – you have to rethink if you want to do it or
2: not. But there because is some benefit in going on and off ketogenic diets, correct? I So if you do a ketogenic diet and you want to stay in a state of ketosis, the days that I do intermittent fasting now, which I didn't do like five years ago, I don't necessarily do the keto. I do a high, higher protein, low carb, but my macros are not ketogenic. Typically, uh, not all the time. Sometimes they are. Uh, but there are different – like you could do intermittent fasting with a carb-based diet and still get ketones You know, by the end of your, your fast. You could do low-carb. You could do ketogenic. I actually think it's, it's a little bit better to be metabolically flexible. So I'll throw in – I tend to eat a lot of vegetables and then I'd throw in some fruits too a few, a few days a week where uh, it may kick me out of ketosis. But during the middle of the day when I need to be at my best, I pretty much always – I'm running low to moderate ketones. During the day, and about, I can do that with different strategies now. You know, with my body. How much does body. that kick you out of ketosis, though? I can't imagine at it. nighttime. Yeah. Uh, what do yeah, you eat specifically? You know, I might eat uh, half of uh, dark chocolate, one or two things of dark chocolate, and uh, which is maybe 15, 20 grams of carbs, and maybe uh, a half cup of blueberries, and then a big salad and some vegetables. Typically, green, green vegetables. So, when you,
1: when you say it kicks you out of ketosis, so if you measure your blood, your ketones drop below what level?
2: Uh... 0.5. And okay. I typically don't even measure at night, but I wake up in the morning and I might be about 0.5. And then that goes up throughout the day. So okay. middle part of the day, I'm typically running one, between one to two, sometimes three millimoles. If is I take a ketone another, uh, the,
0: the, the urine strips are only effective in the early stages of ketosis. Yep. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Because uh, in the beginning, you spill out a lot of ketones in your urine, but as you increase ketone transport and utilization over time, less of them end up in your urine how much time is that uh depends on the person but after about two or three weeks you may see less of a color change on the urine strips even if you didn't change your diet is there another
0: effective method other than the pricking the finger
2: yeah well uh i think the blood uh you know abbott labs makes the uh, precision extra there's the keto mojo which i also use we use in the lab what's I mean, that keto mojo is a blood measurement and glucose measurement device that's essentially uh because abbott cornered the market they uh they basically allow you to check your ketones for a dollar uh a strip instead of you know three or four dollars or five dollars but it's still pricking your finger it's it's pricking your finger i don't use the i actually use a syringe and just take a running start and jab my finger now because it doesn't i got calluses (laughs) like you do on your fingers it's annoying uh yeah i'm kind of used to it but uh the, the urine strip is actually pretty good relative marker and the uh, Siemens uh, multi-stick SG will measure ketones and then nine other things like that measure uh, kidney function and, and, you know, your blood glucose and things like that. So I recommend it's 25 cents a strip. And then there's the breath uh, ketonics meter. You blow mm-hmm. into it and yeah. it measures breath acetone. And uh, the level is also another breath acetone measurement system. I was system. going to ask about that. So, yeah. And, you know, breath acetone highly correlates to fat oxidation. So if your breath acetone is high, you are burning a lot of fat. So Isn't there an issue with people that are key, uh, in the state of ketosis if they get pulled over for drunk driving? A couple of lawyers contacted me. There's some cases going on right now, and they wanted me to weigh in on breathalyzers. Yeah. yeah, the
0: breathalyzers because of the what would you say,
2: acetone with the yeah. of breath? It, it, is uh, it, it, it uses the same technology, uh, breath acetone. And if you, I know that if you drink alcohol and do a breath ketone meter, you can kind of pin it. Depending on what meter you're mm. using, if you're using a breath, that's a for a breath ketone meter. If you use if you have a breath. Uh, alcohol measurement, and you're in a state of ketosis, I have not seen that, depending on the device, that you'll have a false positive, if that's your question. Uh, some devices can. It depends on the device. So
1: one thing I'll I'll bring up, because you said, well, you work with these kind of metabolically elite people. So one of the problems, I say what you're doing, where you kind of take yourself up to the point where you're sort of getting out of ketosis and then going back in, that's probably fine. But most people aren't going to do it that way. They're going to be like, oh, I had a cheesecake or,
2: oh, I couldn't take yeah. any more and I had some pizza or whatever. That's really bad. So you because, see probably people who intermittent fast decrease that window time and overconsume yeah. on – Yeah, so that that's a big problem actually. So actually, I, that can actually, be I wanted
1: point. to bring up intermittent fasting too because I think, again, like if you – So the studies on intermittent fasting show that um, – You lose the same. If calories are the same, you lose the same amount of weight. Same amount of fat. uh, Maybe might be at risk for a little bit more lean body mass loss just because you're triggering protein synthesis less often. But uh, you do have a little bit lower insulin levels. It seems like now whether or not that's again beneficial based on the the research that we talked about likely insulin sensitivity. Insulin sensitivity was a little bit better. Again, so there's some techniques you can do. But people bring up things like autophagy and uh, inflammation, and I again, I kind of get um, the science, So, if you if you just calorically restrict, you increase autophagy and you increase you decrease inflammation. Yeah, and, but you don't
2: get, and autophagy is dependent upon the decrease in certain uh, amino acids, glucose, and insulin. And you achieve those biomarker states at a more significant level doing intermittent fasting than you would and they are the autophagy regulators. Can you send me the the, the research amptor, for that I would love okay, to see? Okay. Amtor, amp kinase, you know, leucine. Mm-hmm. So if you are eating various meals throughout the day three times a day, like you know, your blood leucine levels will be But you've always got
1: to keep it in context of twenty four hours. So yes. people people do this with with fat storage and oxidation as well. They say, well yeah. if you're if you're fasting all this time, you're burning so much body fat well yeah, but then by definition, if you're eating less at these times, you have to eat more at this time if you're keeping calories the same. And so during that time post meal, you're gonna store a lot more fat, you're gonna have much higher insulin. Now maybe not maybe lower and overall. If you have
2: a fast metabolism that's good, me, you're overshooting and those calories have to go somewhere. So so, that's, so the point
1: being be over twenty-four yeah. hours, you don't see differences in fat loss or fat gain, intermittent fasting versus non. I would be interested in the inflammation stuff and the autophagy stuff because, again, caloric restriction in and of itself increase, or decreases inflammation, increases autophagy. Interestingly enough, one of the sugar studies they did with, with higher sugar, with still calorically restricted, they showed decreases in inflammation. So, so it's
0: inflammation is uh, largely an issue of caloric restriction or the or, reduction or of inflammation. excess. Do excess. you guys think that that's what's going on with this carnivore diet? Yeah. The people – it's
1: hard. Now,
2: I think it's – a calorie restriction effect, it, probably. It, it's hard and to overeat meat. diet effect.
1: Like, yeah. look at, um, if I give you a plate of French fries, like 200 grams of French fries, you can get a lot of calories from that. If I give you 200 grams of meat, even a real fatty meat, it's not nearly the same. Like, you, you're going to be much more satiated from the protein. Mm-hmm. Like, you can only eat so much meat, you right. know? And uh, again, like, if you, I don't want to go too far down the carnivore diet hole, but the, the stuff I see with people, yeah. Do I think you can eat meat and improve your blood markers? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Of course. You could eat Pop Tars. Yeah.
1: You. But, but the, the point is, is like when we get into this Coordinate kind of link. zealot of only eat meat, you don't need vegetables, you yeah. know, that kind of, there's, there's, I mean, again, it's epidemiology, but there's some really tight meta analyses that have been done looking at colorectal cancer and low fiber intake and i yeah. would not be comfortable recommending people not eat you know enough vegetables and fiber but i, people... I feel
2: uncomfortable eating a steak you know or a burger uh, without like something like broccoli or a salad i think right. you negate many of the potentially carcinogenic compounds that are in red meat uh, and that's a whole another debate but i think yeah, you essentially iron and... yeah heme iron and and uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons yeah. 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 yeah chris kresser
0: actually brought that up yesterday when yeah. talking about meat consumption with vegetables. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Like with bro- cruciferous vegetables, yes. broccolis and salads. Like I, I don't I, personally would not eat red meat. So
1: either. full disclosure, I mean, I was – because I get accused on Twitter of being a carb guy mm-hmm. and I'm not. I was – my research was funded by the Egg Board, the Beef – beef, uh, National Beef something or another. Sorry, guys. And then uh, the National Dairy Council. So, you know, full disclosure. By the way, all you guys out there who – again, you're just taking my word for it, but who think that like industry is this evil thing that comes in and controls everything. I met one person, my entire PhD from the funding sources, and I met them for literally 30 seconds. They were at a, it was at experimental biology and they said, hi, thanks for, thank you for the grant. Oh, great, great, great job. Thank you. That was it. Now I'm not saying that there isn't nefarious things that can happen but like when i heard when i like the show with nina everything was about who funded it and this and that and yeah. but that's why they have to disclose those things on papers and also this is why science science is self-regulating because somebody is going to repeat your study and if they don't find the same thing you found you're going to be in trouble.
2: So I I get criticized for conflict of interest. I've seen it on social media and things. So I I should probably say I am not a medical doctor or even a registered dietitian. I'm a PhD scientist. So don't take my word as (laughs) medical or nutrition advice. Uh, (laughs) We do, our research is funded not only by the Department of Defense and Office of Navy Research, but also by companies that actually develop ketone food products and also exogenous ketone supplements. And our... University owns the rights to those patents. I don't have any products myself. Our com- we have a company, Ketone Technologies, and Ketone Nutrition is the information website. But at this time, we have no products. But the university licenses our intellectual property, and products are made out of that. And I get patent royalties, and I put the patent royalties back into our research. So buying various exogenous ketones. Uh, products that are on the market can come back and help support the science and the application uh, of this. I'm just going to so vouch for him. I, I don't, I, you know, I tend not to state that, but I get called out for not stating that. So I think it's important. I'm going to vouch for
1: that. him because he's actually writing a chapter in my new book. So we're going to have a chapter about the ketogenic yes. diet. If you're going to do it, this is how to do it right. So the new book, Fat Loss Forever, shameless plug. Um, and he said, I just want all the money. That that I make from the book to go back into the lab. So nice, like that's and Dom Walter, al- Walter
2: Longo has a similar with ProLon with mm-hmm. his line too. I know his profits, he you know the profits that he takes, he puts back yeah. into nope, research. No,
1: nobody's it. unbiased. Anybody that says there are is full of crap. We all have our yeah. biases. We all have things that we think work better than other. Sure, but I think the fundamental, if you if you meet a scientist, and hopefully I equip myself well in this, and I think Dom does as well is that, one, you have an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. And two, you care more about getting the right answer than being right. When I went to do my PhD, I was eating eight meals a day. I was eating 300 grams of protein a day. I was looking for more reasons to eat more protein and eat it more frequently. When I left my PhD, I ate four meals a day, and I ate a little bit less protein. And less frequently. And, and you're becoming because that
2: refractory was, to the yeah, uh, yeah, amino acids. Yeah, yeah, the rest, so, refractory uh, phenomenon. I we, was we eating came 500 across. grams of protein a day. I was eating like two or three two pound London broils and washing it down with a product metrics with HMB in it like that, in that between was, meals like back in the mid early 90s your farts was that brutal <laughs> and that was the coolest I thing I digested about, it well actually <laughs> yeah.
1: that was the coolest thing about my research was it changed the way I ate I actually changed the way I ate and responded mm, yeah. to my, but I was, I, I, that was my bias coming in but I, said, I looked at the research data and I'm like either I believe this or I don't and if I believe this I can't justify X, Y, Z.
0: Right. Can I, can I go back to the epidemiology studies uh, when, in regards to colon and rectal cancer? There really haven't been any studies on people that just eat meat, though, right? You're, you're talking no. about people who eat meat on a regular basis, and that usually is the standard American diet, a lot of other bullshit in there, sugar, buns. And there's tons of the fries, co-founders. Trans fats. Absolutely. Right. Right. I would be fascinated to see some sort of long-term studies on someone who's on a very strict carnivore diet. I'm really fascinated by this because I'm, I'm seeing all these people have all these benefits, but I am, I've got skeptical hippo face every step of the way. I'm like, I'm not.
1: Now, again, if it's allowing them to create a caloric restriction, yes. right? And somebody says, you know what? I've tried every other diet out there. Uh, I've tried to eat high fiber and I've tried to eat enough vegetables. And I can't, but I can stick to this. Right. And I can cre- And I can lose some fat. And I'm going to say, OK, well, maybe that's the best diet for you. Well, I just know so many people that are benefiting from it. Like,
2: uh, you know, and, and not just uh, the part have been on the podcast before. I know a lot of other people. And if they're Remember, followed by a doctor and collecting blood work along the way, I mean, those doctors can write case reports. Mm-hmm. So I'd be glad to assist in a, in a case report if people are tracking all their blood markers mm-hmm. and doing their blood Most work. Most of the people like aren't, though. That's what's right.
0: going on. Most of these knuckleheads are just eating meat and saying they feel great, and that well, there's a war on vegetables. Like well, it's fucking.
1: It's re, very strange. Remember that people f- don't discount psychology. People are right. feeling very positively about it because it's the flavor of the month. Yeah. Right. Like, and i I'm, no hate towards carnivore. I don't know who the I think uh, Dr. Baker Sean is, Baker is the yeah. one big guy. Um, Uh, But, you know, like if I even Even dogs
2: eat grass, I mean, my dogs out and eat around (laughs) the grass, you know, to get some uh, cats 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 are 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 obligate carnivores. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: cats, interestingly, are one thing that, yeah, they don't there is a carb tolerance with them. They don't tolerate them. Well, they become obese. Yeah. But hashtag vegan cat. (laughs) So the (laughs) the, 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 I think the thing is that I'm not I don't believe in any one diet. I'm not trying to sell anyone diet. I would like to sell you
0: I'm, on a ketogenic diet. I really want to see you do it for like four <laughs> or five months just to see if you're experiencing the same benefits as him. I, it I seems actually, pretty obvious that you really haven't done it like whole hog. I uh, agree
2: with that totally. And I think I could probably put together a meal plan I did with it. keto cookies and things so, like oh, that. Where you fucking cookies. <laughs>
1: but, see, <laughs> uh, but I like my cookies. Uh, I, I did. Food I did. Technology. you like real. Hang, yeah. On, yeah. hang on. Hang <laughs> on. See, I, I did a ketogenic diet and it was fine. I felt fine. My performance months. didn't suffer suffer that much. What was your blood markers? They didn't really change a whole lot. Like I had, I think some. I would consider them insignificant changes. I I maintained. Um, what about I, your millimolars? My millimolars. Did you do urine ketones
2: or blood ketones, or did you? Oh, I didn't ketones? look at my blood. I didn't. I didn't measure those. I so did you do not even know if sticks. you were really in. Oh,
0: Okay. Uh, I did some urine, urine sticks. sticks. Um, and what stage were you in, from moderate to
1: high, in terms of? ketones? I would have been the modified ketogenic diet so i would have been not
2: super but i would have been so you uh, barely made 0. it 5. into
0: ketosis yeah
2: i would have been above point yeah. you you uh, well, so keto? he's uh eight weeks into it and that's yeah. about the point i was kind of feeling crummy and stuff but so uh so i actually really felt about three well not crummy but i cognitively optimum, it was kicking in yeah but uh but i was a little bit flat in the gym yeah. and then uh started to fill out and then it's a learning curve too right but so see
1: my thing was if i can get the same if i can get the same benefits just by restricting my calories and keeping higher protein and i love the same benefits in terms of
0: cognitive function in terms of okay but that's
2: science i would say i mean we study you could look at pubmed everything from polycystic ovary syndrome to acne you know type 2 diabetes type 1 diabetes now that's a little bit controversial uh genetic Uh, metabolic migraines you know a whole host of neurological disorders simply because beta hydroxybutyrate is I believe sort of from there's an objective truth that it's a superior metabolic fuel. And if you, How do you have millimolar that? levels in your blood, that's a significant amount of energy in your blood that your tissues can use.
1: How are you defining superior metabolic fuel? What's uh, the objective? Uh,
2: the delta G of ATP hydrolysis in the heart is enhanced. So essentially you're making more ATP for a given amount of oxygen. Which actually, various, which actually means
1: your metabolic rate could be slower. Uh
2: Maybe. You are more metabolically efficient. Yeah. Yeah, So you're more metabolically efficient potentially, but I don't think in the context of fat loss. But it's also enhancing insulin sensitivity and simply feeding ketones uh, independent of carbohydrate restriction increases fat oxidation in the muscle. This has been published.
1: There's been been studies to look at like a ketogenic diet versus a non-ketogenic higher carb diet. And they show that basically by going ketogenic, you reduce overall insulin area under the curve by 20%. That was the the number they got. Now, if I was type 1 diabetic, I would 100% do the ketogenic diet. 100%. Absolutely. Okay, And that's very
2: controversial. This is not medical
1: medical advice. This is me personally.
2: I actually, Um, when I used to give talks, I would say for these things. But if you're type 1 diabetic, you want to avoid uh, the ketogenic diet as much as possible because there's diabetic something called diabetic ketoacidosis. But, but that's, like my student, Andrew Kutnick uh, at USF. Uh, that's if you've pre- also got a lot of insulin. Yeah. He has a blog on ketonutrition.org. Go to it. And it's a very detailed description about carbohydrate restriction and managing your blood glucose. And it goes into really into the weeds if you want to read so that. It,
0: so. so can I stop you there, though? Could, yeah. Can you elaborate on that? So you used to say that if you were type 1 diabetic, you wouldn't?
2: I uh, did because it was very controversial territory. Now. Describe
1: what uh, diabetic ketoacidosis is.
2: Yeah. So it, If you're type 1 diabetic, uh, you make little or no insulin at all, right? And uh, I guess maybe just going back to a normal person, when they fast or they do the ketogenic diet, it increases fat oxidation in the liver, and that fat oxidation actually accumulates acetyl-CoA, and that creates ketones, acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate, and it occurs in the context of insulin suppression. But you still have normal insulin, but it's very low. Right, uh, and then when your ketones get elevated, you spill some out in the urine, and that's how you eliminate them. Your muscles, your brain burns them, and if they get really high, you have a an increase in ins, a small increase in insulin release when your ketones get real high, and that insulin ramps down fat oxidation in the liver and decreases ketone production. So, and there's other things too, but I don't want to get too much into the weeds. But you, you're a fi- very a normal person is finely tuned to create to maintain physiological ketones within a certain range with nutritional ketosis. With diabetic uh, type 1 diabetes, that's completely thrown out the window. So without insulin being there, uh, the absence of insulin essentially creates runaway ketogenesis and your ketones become very, very high in the context of very high glucose. Exactly. So you have high glucose and high ketones. It creates a metabolic uh, disruption; it creates an acidotic state and electrolyte imbalances, and coma and death, which right? is not going to happen in people who are healthy who are just doing a ketogenic diet. Yeah.
0: Right, but but what, so what with the... type
2: one diabetes, if you, uh, for example, my student uh, using his an example because I think he, maybe he was using twenty or thirty IU's of insulin a day, right, and then starts carbohydrate restriction and even a modified ketogenic diet and can reduce that insulin requirement to four, five, six IUs a day. So literally knocking it down, you know, to 20% of what he was taking So what has changed in your perception when you did not recommend it? Uh, Well, there's a Harvard study that basically looked at a group called Type 1 Grit. On uh, Facebook, there's a group called Type 1 Grit, and it's got thousands of people who use a low-carbohydrate approach, not necessarily a ketogenic diet approach, some are, uh, but it's it's very carbohydrate restricted in terms of what uh, a doctor, an endocrinologist, would prescribe for a type one diabetic. It would almost maybe look like suicide to some people. And low carbohydrate dramatically decreases your insulin requirements. And if you look at your continuous blood glucose, you know, recordings over the course of a week those numbers are much, much tighter, and that's going to pay huge dividends uh, in the long run when it comes to uh, longevity and health span and, you know, the potential for going blind or decreasing your kidney function, you know, by these huge postprandial spikes. Essentially, if you're type 1 diet, you're always chasing your glucose with insulin injections, right, or an insulin pump. If you're carbohydrate restricted, you're basically not, it's, it's very liberating because you're not, your dependence on insulin is far, far less. You know, some, controversially, some people have gotten completely off of insulin. I would not recommend that, but no. some people are actually doing that. So the, the, I think. Highly not recommended. I, I hear but, this
1: from critics, critics of the ketogenic diet, and this is a BS criticism. that Again, here's me defending the ketogenic diet is that, well, you'll, you'll be, you'll become uh, uh people who are healthy you, you have diabetic you have di- ketoacidosis that is not going to happen because by definition if your ketones are high you your health and you're relatively healthy not type one diabetic your blood glucose is low it's when both are elevated that it's dangerous okay and if you're a type one diabetic like andrew mm-hmm. who you're just using a little bit of insulin to get that baseline to get your glucose levels down to a baseline level and then you're using a carb restricted diet creates ketones while your blood glucose is at a normal basal level that again not a doctor that medical advice that should not be dangerous right
2: and now over the years because he's a power lifter and he's a super big dude he's like 250 pounds like when he goes to the gym he has learned that he can pulse a little bit of insulin and maybe ramp up his protein or maybe even take a little bit of carbohydrates but you know the next day he's still doing low carb throughout the day but he's learned to leverage you know as a type 1 diabetic you uh you have that advantage right because you can manipulate insulin uh, for body composition alterations or things like that. So he uh, he has learned to adjust his protein to maximize his sort of gains and performance in the gym. And uh, but nonetheless, he goes from a sh- he went from a strategy he transitioned to a strategy that would be uh, would look to be almost suicidal from the perspective of an endocrinologist doctor managing type 1 to do that level of carbohydrate restriction. Uh, It would be, uh, and now we actually have hard science to show that that can not only can be done, that gets, that dramatically decreases the variability of your blood glucose fluctuation throughout the day from a weekly perspective and your requirements for insulin. Whenever you could use less insulin to manage your blood glucose, that's a good thing. I would, it's very hard for a doctor to argue against using less insulin and keeping tighter numbers there's no way to argue against that so if you can follow the diet so that this gets back to adherence yeah. again right. right again
1: so it, it's one of those things that like you said i'd like to see you try it and, yeah. and do it and whatnot and you know what i would probably be fine but i enjoy having a variety of foods and i enjoy having a variety of fuels as well no i'm sure you so, do
0: but i'd still like to see you try it
2: <laughs> like those well, two mutually exclusive no
1: yeah. you're right but I like, I have, like well, I, I have
2: a chapter in his book that's coming out that we worked you know t- together and uh, just took some of the concepts that I've don't you find that your preferences change as well like in yeah. terms of your hunger pangs you're, you're not you don't crave sugary foods right. carbohydrates yeah anymore.
0: but you yeah. do so That's you like them Yeah, look at you uh, I like them for yeah I like them
2: <laughs> He's getting hungry. He's got to. Well, to, the, about to it, get yeah. in the to get
1: the amount of. Oh my God! Give me the sugar. Where's the pizza? Uh, no, I I don't. What did you have for breakfast this morning? What did I have for breakfast? This morning? I had uh, steak and eggs. Whoa! There you go. And
2: a few keto. Oh, and some,
0: and toast. some toast. Oh, you yeah. son of a bitch! With oh, your God. bread, stab him in
2: the face. What is wrong with you? God. Don't you know? Spike my insulin? Don't you know? Big know serving so? of nothing. Oh. <laughs> I so, feel lots of energy. Yeah. But I eat- I,
1: again it's 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 individual and I want to to point out that if somebody likes a ketogenic I've had people do a ketogenic diet. I've had people, you know, get mm-hmm. ready for shows on a ketogenic diet. That, that And why that. did you put them on a ketogenic diet? Cuz that's what they liked. They were they were they had that preference for that. And it got to a point where uh, for some people their calories get so low if they have slow metabolic rates that the level of fat restriction it would take them to is probably not great for hormone levels. So I tended to pull a little bit more carb relative to fat. And so we didn't start out, targeting them as ketogenic, but by the end they were. Um, so,
2: you know. So you had to resort to something that actually works.
1: Oh, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You know, basal metabolic, yeah. because metabolic rate declines, you get to a point, especially to get that lean. I mean, I'm somebody who's... Uh, like again more average muscle mass and pretty fast metabolism usually i had to get down to like under 2000 calories a day to get yeah. to get ready for a show so for me, I was I had my carbohydrates for briefly under 100 grams of carbs per day in that show prep. I don't know so if you remember, is, but I was smelled? remember
2: I was sticking your fingers and measuring your glucose. Yeah. in the bathroom. I forget where. Yeah, yeah. 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 My
0: theory is that when you do that and you carb restrict and you well, you, you uh, calorie restrict rather and get down you, once that shit's over, you just want to reward yourself as often as possible. So when someone comes along with something like a ketogenic diet
1: and go no bread, no pop, fuck you, you just you just don't want to do it. You get, um, but you get the same, uh, the adherence and the relapse is the same whether it's ketogenic or another diet. Relapse, All, uh, like regaining
2: weight. Yeah, but that's, is, is it comes, bread? It's again, is it like pasta and bread? Because, what but, it, like, but is it? There's no no foods actually creates yeah, they've sent they they've have got great like stuff their gr- waffles are excellent Bread. they have like yeah. uh hamburger buns now mm-hmm. i think yeah so they, it's good stuff it is good i really yeah, like I've, right. I've
0: made sandwiches with their stuff uh-huh. um what but, knocks me out more than anything of ketosis is just too much meat yeah yeah that's, yeah. that's, the, yeah, that's the one that gets me
1: I, again i i kind of go back to that the data is very mixed. Again, if we look at the overall data set, very mixed, and all diets have terrible adherence, right? But right. a lot but of
0: that—that's discipline.
1: Yeah, but we also now we that we've drives got to...
0: me crazy. I don't want to talk about people who aren't disciplined. <laughs> I really, really, I really have a giant hard problem. But with how that do because we... I know so many disciplined people, and I just I feel. <laughs> their momentum and vibration and i'm like i just want to concentrate on what they're doing because all these people that can't do it i feel like that's contagious you but, start thinking about people that can't adhere to diets and fall off. i get it for you because it's something that you do but professionally
1: I'm, but i'm gonna i'm gonna make a so for you the ketogenic diet clicks and, or or eating more meat clicks that that's something that you really enjoy you like the state you like Y'all the state. So, I, dude
2: i love pasta it makes well hang, it on, whole it whole makes hang on makes discipline easier
0: because yeah. <laughs> it regulates <laughs> but your the appetite. data doesn't support I think that so too. The I data think,
1: doesn't, but the data it, doesn't
0: support that it makes discipline easier in terms of your adherence or in terms both. of your long term adherence
1: both both so but, I, but but hang on hang on okay. for some people for some people this works better mm-hmm. because they feel better they have better adherence. For other people, if you say, now you've got some people, if you say, hey, you can have a cookie, it, they would, it would screw them because they, f- would, they would just go crazy. But for other people, if you allow them more flexibility, their adherence improves. What I'm saying is we need to give people all the options on the table, not demonize any one diet mm-hmm. and say, hey, maybe you try to figure out what works for lack of sounding bro, what this- works for you and what you can sustain. Go from there, but see this is I'm the totally problem. in agreement. I, 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 I
0: am as well. But you keep saying can sustain. You definitely can sustain more than you do. The the, the real problem is a giant percentage of the people are weak. Oh, I would agree with that. Like it's in the 30%, 40% people just quit, give up, don't do what they're supposed to do, don't do as many reps as they're supposed to do, don't work out and take days off just because they're lazy. And those are the people that get off the diet. It's a
2: discipline issue so more than anything. The market well, that's the for case that then- is really big. So I think various foods that are emerging on the market right now, app-based systems, Verta Health actually has a great app-based system that actually coaches you through that, uh, and I think that's very helpful. So I think new technologies, foods, and... Will make it, will increase adherence. Also, when you have a person who knows and understands all the health benefits associated with nutritional ketosis or just low carb, I think that can be a motivating factor to make them stick to the diet. So, yeah,
0: but for a guy like you who's rational and disciplined, but people that are self destructive and weak.
1: They're going to, oh, I can't yeah, do then, this
0: anymore. I need a burger. I need fries. I need a shake. Well, mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's so I, their choice. But yes. then kind yes, of right?
1: what's the point of the whole conversation then, though? Well, the point <laughs> of the
0: conversation is to avoid those motherfuckers because they're going to drag you <laughs> down to their mediocre level.
2: I think you need to sympathize with them a little bit I because I think the market and Seems I think so this is a fruitful area for entrepreneurs to create He's technologies right and foods that can actually enhance adherence or to stop eating strategies we know about. That too, so it's well, a combination. I feel, I feel of like things. so
0: much of it is what you're willing to accept from yourself. If you're if you are willing to accept this seesaw uh, uh, obesity thing that so many people get on on and off this yo-yo effect, if you're willing to accept that, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But. I just feel like it's a mental state. I really do. I see once you achieve a certain amount of success, people start sabotaging themselves. They start, they, they, they start dwelling on the fact that they're doing well, but how long can they sustain this? It starts being a big, fat mind fuck. And and that's when you say like what's sustainable? What's sustainable? A lot more than you're willing to do. What's sustainable is stop Don't being yell a bitch. <laughs> Not you, the, the person out there that's listening. I know, to this. but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like there, there's a thing. Like we're giving people these fucking escape clauses. We're giving them these 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 parachutes that they can pull. Don't pull the parachute, motherfucker just have a cheat day that's fine but don't get off your diet have a cheat meal eat a fucking giant sundae throw some syrup on that bitch get that whipped cream going do it once but don't live your life like that that's nonsense
1: and and I think that for yeah I wouldn't disagree with anything you said I, that's I think what that
0: people need to hear. Not this like, this, like, well, you can't sustain it. The keto diet gy- gy- is not sustainable. You uh, sustain, they're, they're I no, I to sustain it. I don't confidence with their
2: control. If you do I intermittent said no diet fasting, is sustainable. if you fast for three days, that will give you a lot of confidence that you have control over food. Fasting for three days. You
0: can't say no diet is sustainable. It's not sustainable over... If you look for at the, the general m- population and you get a, a bunch of weak bitches and you get them <laughs> together, how many of them are going to keep it together? How many of them are going to run every day? How many of them are going to work out every day? Very, very, very few. You're so, Dealing with outliers in particular, just by what, by virtue of what you do, how many people are willing to put the work in to achieve this? Not how many? many not, how not many? many. Was gonna, how many people are going to achieve this physique? Very, very few, right? Thank you. So we're talking about <laughs> outliers. We're talking about how. That's what I like. I like outliers. I don't like people that are like it's too hot. I can't hear that. <laughs> I'm not. That's dangerous. So I feel like
1: that shit is worse than carbs. That's why we talk a lot in the book about behaviors. Because if you change your behavior, that's what we, I think there's not enough research focused on is yes. let's look at the people who actually achieve weight loss. And right. they, if you look at people who achieve it and keep it off, they do it through many different methods, whether it's low carb, low fat, whatever it is. But let's look at the behaviors that they make. And those behaviors can tell us a lot about people. One thing we know is they practice, for, they, they weigh themselves very often. They, so they're accountable. They, they practice some form of cognitive restraint, whether it's weighing food, recording macros, ketogenic, fat restriction, whatever it is. And also, they exercise regularly. And one, there's physiological benefits to that. Exercise lowers the body fat set point that your body will defend. So it actually has a physiological benefit. But also just mentally, like you said, I mean, I never – if you took me back 30 years ago and you told me – hey, or when I was 10 years old and you said, hey – when I was like bullied and picked on, had no self-esteem, you're gonna fucking squat 668 pounds one day on your back at 201 pounds and set a—it's been broken since then, but a world record. I would have been like, "There's no fucking way. There's no way." But when you have discipline, like you said, and you—that doesn't just people say you should have more confidence. That's a—that's fucking horseshit advice. Confidence is built through. You set a goal and you achieve. It. Yes. And you set a goal and you achieve it. And you don't start out to say, I'm going to set a world record and that's your first goal. Right. You, you, I like what Will Smith said. He said, you lay a brick as perfectly as you can lay it. You do it again and you do it again and you do it again. Yes. And you talk to anybody who's successful in anything. They didn't start out saying, I'm going to do this earth shattering thing. Right. They started out and built that confidence over years and years of achieving small goals, which then led them to their big goals. Now we're
0: on to something because I think that the mental state in which you approach anything, a workout routine, a lifestyle, the way you decide to live your life, that is critical. And here's one of the things that people are cynical about that's probably one of the best sources of fuel is inspiration from other motivated people. Go to David Goggins' Instagram oh, page every Goggins. day. Watch that fucking savage. Watch yeah. what he Met does, him. and yeah, he's awesome. But go to people like him, Cameron Haynes. Go to go to go to people Met like The Rock. Like yeah. these fucking people just do it. There's yeah. no escape. There's no. Oh, I can't sustain that. That's not.
2: I don't want to hear that shit. That's nonsense. And failing is good. It's okay yes. if you fail. Like yeah, you if you feel don't like shit fail, and then you're you feel not going to You get back on the horse. You're not pushing yourself yes. hard enough. If you well, not Well, I think failed.
1: when I say sustainability, I mean if if it's if it's. Because everybody has stuff that they find. Again, you find a, a carb-restricted diet to be easier to stick to for you. It just you.
0: feels better for and me. It feels
1: better for you. Yeah. And that's fine. But if, but if somebody is over here and says, you know what? I'm eating a low-fat diet. I feel great. My blood markers are good. I have plenty of energy. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. Exactly.
0: No, I mean, there's my libertarian. Oh, unquestionably <laughs> it exists, right? There's a, yeah. there's a giant difference between all of this. Some people eat peanuts and they die. Right, we, yeah. all, we all know that. There's just the body is just very, very different. They vary exactly. The caloric requirements, the the, the nutritional requirements. It, it, that's what's hard about this, right? Is finding this one thing that is best for you. And, yes. And objectively, and you know, and being. Really analyzing your your actual physical performance, which very very few people do. They kind of say, well, I feel pretty good, but by what marker, right? Mm -hmm. What's your personal best? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you monitoring your heart rate? Are you monitoring your work output? Like what are you doing to show that this diet is optimal for you?
1: Yeah. Well, and part of that is like, you know, it's hard to get – that's a lot of money that's going to be spent to to get that data yes, you know for an individual sure. so part of it is going to have to be what do you feel good on and what do you feel like is again most sustainable for you cuz no matter what that people want a diet what people really want is they want i don't want to have to track and i don't want to have to sacrifice anything and i want to get to my goal well tough shit that's not going to happen you have to pick what you're going to sacrifice right, right? so if you say i hate tracking calories so i'm just not going to eat carbs because I, I can regulate my body weight that way. Fuck yeah, do that. I had a post on Twitter that was like one of my most popular Twitter posts. I said, you know, health improvements are largely driven by caloric restriction and weight loss. But if, if you like vegan, if you like keto, if you like carnivore, if you, and I just listed a bunch of different diets. And they help you create a restriction and it keeps you at a healthy weight, then fuck Yeah hell yeah Like, if somebody says I like eating a vegan diet I'm
2: not not interested in losing weight but ketogenic intermittent fasting is very very easy for me I love the food and I feel better and uh, I think all my health biomarkers are improving you don't 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 need
1: any other reasoning for why you should do it yeah Yeah. with him it
2: works
0: now can I I ask you this when you say diets aren't sustainable the data doesn't show that were you talking about calorie restricted diets that overall weight loss diets are you talking about dietary choices in terms of like ketogenic
1: diet excellent question so it's that if you lose weight, we cannot keep it off that is that is the big problem is that most people are able to lose weight and they cannot keep it off because one the the self defense system that we talked about is so really they lose
0: weight too quickly, their body gets into this state
1: where it's always trying to regain that weight back part of it part of it, yeah, like losing it more quickly there's debate about this, but I would say that it's you have to create a more extreme deficit to do that. And so you are activating your body's self-defense system more intensely, if I had to say it that way. So the rebound is usually bigger as well. So it's, it's trying to find a way, okay, can we get this weight off? And then let's really emphasize to people that the diet after the diet, nobody talks about this, except for us in the book. <laughs> nobody talks about this. Uh, my co-writer for the, the book, Peter Baker and I, we spent we spent chapters talking about when you go in transition into, OK, we've lost the weight we want to lose. We're healthier. You have to have the same amount of discipline and intensity to then maintain that loss, because if you let up, if you let your foot off the gas, now you don't necessarily have to be at the same caloric restriction level. But if you just let yourself kind of well, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat what I want. Boom, gain 10 pounds. And everybody knows people like this, who who they go and they, they do this. Yeah. And you've just, you've literally just undid months of hard work right. in one week. Would you say
2: if you could maintain that for a set amount of time, say six months. So mm-hmm. I think that if someone can maintain that weight loss for six months, that's like sort of like the tipping point where okay. they can go on. Got my wheelhouse right here. Go ahead. Uh, so, so
1: <laughs> that's a great point. So. Leptin is a – I'm sure you've heard of people talk about leptin. So when you lose fat, leptin secretion goes down because fat cells secrete it. And uh, it's kind of like your body's thermostat and body fat. Everybody has like a set point their body likes to be at. So if you lose body fat, you secrete less leptin. Hunger goes up. Metabolic rate goes down. And ghrelin. tries to Yes. And ghrelin is in opposition to leptin. So you, you this is your body like a thermostat. So if you're on a thermostat, if you set it at 75, goes too low, kick the heat on, bump it back up, goes too high – kick the cooling on, go back down. Leptin acts that way with your metabolic rate and your hunger. When you get down to a low body fat, leptin's low. Your body, you have a drive to regain that weight. Your, your hunger's higher. Your, your, your metabolic rate is lower. Leptin still stays low even years after a diet in people who have uh, kept the weight off. Mm. So there's, you would think there'd still be a biological drive to regain the weight. That said, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. So, any of my scientists who are listening on this, feel free to call me out on the carpet if you think I'm wrong. But just like obese people, obese people actually have high levels of leptin. They have high levels of leptin, but they become leptin resistant.
2: Leptin insensitive.
1: Right. Yeah. If you stay at a, re- there is evidence that if you stay at a reduced body weight for one or two years, that that can become your new. Set point that your body defends. I think what can happen is even if your leptin doesn't so go up, one or
2: two years, not six months. Yeah, I it's a little always, bit longer, okay. it's a little bit longer. So, but what it's a is good the start mechanism. What's happening?
1: I think it's probably multifaceted because nothing your body is so redundant, usually, nothing is ever one thing. Typically, uh, adjusting but your I, set point. I, I think one of the things that happens is probably your body becomes more sensitive to the leptin you have because you're mm. leaner. Now, I want to talk about performance, because this is a
0: big thing with athletes, and particularly uh, in my field with fighters. Uh, many of them are reluctant to try a ketogenic diet, initially because of the the, the first few weeks are pretty rough, and okay. it, it really inha- inhibits training, and you, know, you get that keto flu feeling, and mm-hmm. I've, I've experienced that too. Mm-hmm. But overall, is the ketogenic diet a good strategy for someone that's involved in some sort of a a a brutal athletic pursuit like football
2: or wrestling? It can be absolutely, uh, and it will be dependent upon being keto-adapted over time and actually training in a state of ketosis so you force those adaptations over time. We know the ketogenic diet is glycogen-sparing over time. Glycolytic pathways will be decreased over time, so that may impair uh, anaerobic power output initially, but I think that some, most people, some, I think, uh, a a good amount of people could adapt back to, especially if they're taking things like creatine monohydrate and and taking various supplements that can kind of fill that gap, uh, to meet the, uh, glycolytic anaerobic energy demands. You know, Zach Bitter.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Zach Bitter, who holds the American record for the fastest 24-hour run, or twenty-four, uh, the fastest 100-mile run, yeah. he did it in an 11 hours and 40 minutes. Insane. Yeah, yeah. he ran 100 miles. It's fucking yeah. it's
2: just nonsense.
1: I like, actually corresponded with him on Twitter one time. Not, not a zealot, by the way. Yeah. Very no, smart not guy.
2: not a at all. Very smart guy. Jeff Bolick, I think, uh, brought him to my attention, and actually we're looking at some of the – you know, muscle biopsies from various athletes that are doing similar things. Yeah, he's, he's on seen. a
0: ketogenic diet, essentially. Yeah. But when he does these long races, he takes in a considerable amount of glucose. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, do, he uses those gels and, you
2: know, take yeah. hundreds and hundreds. Probably of- relatively sparingly compared to a person that's already, like, very carb-adapted. Mm. So, right, so you just, you just want to, especially a 100-mile race, you titrate in small Instead of drinking 50 or 100 grams of carbs, 20 grams of carbs every hour or two, uh, maybe more than enough. But say and, you're Zach, tweet us fat. if you need to correct us. Yeah.
0: Well, Zach <laughs> okay. has a podcast that he also does with Sean Baker. Um, and he, he basically eats mostly meat. I mean, Z- Zach's mm-hmm. diet
2: consists of mostly like ribeyes. So he's fully keto and he's using glucose. I think glucose, and this may... Aggravate some of the keto people. I think glucose is one of the most powerful performance-enhancing substances out there. Really, I've like gone glu- co- for that, especially in the context of that, where your glycogen levels are being depleted over time, uh, and even from a training perspective, very small amounts of glucose are anti-catabolic. Maybe argue anabolic in the context of certain scenarios. So Floyd Mayweather drinks a Coca-Cola, but or small a Pepsi. amounts it's right of- after he trains. Well, is there
0: any benefit to that?
1: Well, I mean, you're going to get glycogen replenishment, <laughs> right? But, um, like, and actually, there's there's research out of uh, Layman's Lab years ago that showed that actually sucrose replenishes glycogen in muscle faster than pure glucose, which is interesting. Huh. Probably because the the fructose gets taken up by the liver, so the glucose you do eat, the liver doesn't steal steal any of it, and it goes uh, your your glucose going into muscle, but i would you say know, it ketones
2: to be- too so if the science exogenous. is very new but exogenous ketones uh especially in the in the context of aerobic performance Do you mean like keygenics or like a, K- a ketone yeah. ester uh Kigenics products is great ketone esters most of the science of behind ketone esters uh but there are you know valid applications for the ketone salts that are emerging on the market too like ketogenics. uh i think that the science just over the last couple of years has been incredible um, emerging on that. And I think it's something to watch over time. It's a new fuel source. It's like the fourth macronutrient, Mm -hmm. right? We have carbs, proteins, and fats (laughs) and alcohol. Yeah. Arguably competing. So I, I view ketones as they are a calorie containing energy source. So they are a fourth macronutrient. Now, let me ask you this. If you were doing nutritional
0: consultant for say someone who's a UFC champion and they said, uh, you know, I want to get on the optimal diet for performance. You don't think that a ketogenic diet is the optimal diet for performance. Is that safe to say? Or you would have to experiment I think with we them need, for a long period I think of
1: time? I think, one, it's going to be individual. You like,
0: certainly wouldn't do it in the midst of a camp, right? No. If
2: someone no, had a, no. a so two-month camp.
1: The, 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 oh, man, that's such a nuanced it's an question. It's off-season thing. To, it's, yeah. it's such a nuanced question. But the well, the problem is, is you don't necessarily get an off-season in the, in the, because if they call you with a fight, it's right. not yeah. Yeah. looked nicely upon if you turn it down. Right. So, Um, I think based on the research I've seen, I think you're hard pressed to convince me that a ketogenic diet is worse than a non-ketogenic diet on endurance. I think that's pretty clear. And there may actually be some benefits depending on the individual. Um, as far as repeated sprints or things where you need that anaerobic system, I am not ready to say that a ketogenic diet is going to be as good. I think that a non-ketogenic diet offers you – now, this is where ketone supplements may be actually the best thing possible because you could be using glucose, so you're getting that fuel source, and taking a ketone supplement where you're getting that fuel as well. So
0: not on a ketogenic diet, but taking ketone supplements.
2: That – well – Again, yeah. I don't, the, I like, it's, you know, I think ben the more I want to see, better. I want to see more research. So I want to see more research, fats, carbohydrates, maybe amino acids, creatine. I mean, you know, just basically trying to leverage all the various substrates that your body can use, especially under, if we're talking about anaerobic now people are going to call you know, me a ketogenic output. supplement uh, show. You want to have a suite of different fuel sources, you know, and not mm-hmm. rely – You like metabolic, the term metabolic flexibility, which is kind of used used quite often. Uh, but I think if you train and get your body fat and keto adapted, that provides benefits for recovery. It provides benefits if you're getting – What are the benefits you know, for recovery? Uh, enhanced, uh, you know, lower inflammation, lower chronic inflammation over time. You know, chronic inflammation can contribute to insulin resistance, poor glycogen. Uh, neuroinflammation, if you're getting concussions or even subconcussive events over time, can actually cause a lot of damage. And but I think what is that the mechanism that de- decreases inflammation with the ketogenic diet as opposed to a non? A number of mechanisms. I mean, just simply lowering uh, insulin spikes and in glucose, but the NLRP3 inflammasome uh, is something that we looked at. There was a study where actually we used uh, the ketone ester, and it was published in the journal Nature Medicine, showing that. Uh, in response to LPS, which is kind of like a, stim- uh, inflammatory, a very powerful inflammatory stimulant, that it reduces that and suppresses inflammatory pathways uh, for compared, a particular pathway. Com- compared to, uh, compared to, uh, you mean? So, I mean,
1: well, what? when you're study, you're always comparing two things. Yeah. So, so what were you? What was the control group?
2: Uh, the control group for the inflammation, or it was just. Compared to no, like control, yeah, nothing. So it's just like a placebo. Did you give a placebo? placebo? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So in the context of being in a state of ketosis, it reduces an inflammatory pathway. Think of it as a hub. And when that's activated, uh, you have a host of inflammatory cytokines that flow throughout your body and your brain and cause this persistent low-grade... Uh, neuroinflammation, inflammation in the body that can impede uh, recovery processes over time. And I think that really contributes to, to brain health, too. So I might be getting a little far ahead of myself because that is, it's animal work, but it's convincing animal work looking at a particular pathway that's pretty well defined.
0: And before you get to this, is there one, is there a variation between uh, low-carb, Versus ketosis? Uh, An elevation of ketone
2: levels in your blood. Right, we but define... I mean in terms
0: of uh, is it... there a benefit to the ketogenic, yeah. uh, to being in a state of ketosis with this reduction of inflammation
2: versus low-carb? Uh, I believe there is just by elevating the metabolite uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, but I do think even low-carb has some anti-inflammatory effects. But optimal time. would be ketosis? Uh, I think... Like I said, I, I, I don't think it's going to be optimal for everybody, but I, I know there's going to be benefits to maintaining low to moderate levels of ketones for neurological health and also uh, for, for recovery uh, and maybe performance.
0: Lane, you were wincing
2: at the uh, mention of uh, inflammation.
1: More so that, so we mentioned recovery from exercise,
2: yeah. inflammation. And calorie deficit is a very powerful uh, anti-inflammatory. Anti-inflammatory. Oh, okay. So, I mean, Lane, Lane addresses that. Thank both. you for the context, yeah. Yeah. my fellow scientist.
1: <laughs> Nosella, appreciate that. So one thing I want to, because people get, it's easy to get into black and white thinking. We hear inflammation and we think, oh, that, that's bad. That's bad. So there's some studies that tell us quite a bit about inflammation. Your body actually has an optimal level of inflammation. Too little inflammation is actually
2: bad as well. So if you look first chronic, I was talking about chronic.
1: Yes. This is a lot of thing. A lot of scientists yeah. miss too, is acute. We can talk about it's mTOR fair. and cancer and yeah, people yeah. acute versus yeah. chronic mm-hmm. and how scientists even mess this stuff up. But you, so if you, if you look at studies of recovery from exercise and muscle growth, I'm, I'm focusing on this, but I'll, I'll bring it back around. If you give ibuprofen to healthy people who have normal levels of inflammation, uh, ibuprofen inhibits muscle growth. If you give it to elderly people with high levels of inflammation, they grow more muscle. So this means that the body, for recovery, has an optimal level of inflammation it likes to be in. There is a, a, a kind of a, a curve here.
2: It's a and, COX-2 inhibitor, and beta-hydroxybutyrate is also a COX-2 inhibitor.
1: Right. And so the part of growing muscle and recovery is actually inflammation macrophages and all these sorts of things are involved in that process now if it gets run away if it's too much it's not a good thing but if it's too little it's also not a good thing andy galpin did a great job on your show of talking about a recovery versus adaptation right yeah so one of the things he said if you do ice baths you do these sorts of things you're in the short term allowing yourself to recover faster but you're also limiting how much adaptation you're going to incur and I love that because it was, people miss this. They they say, you know, if you're, if you're somebody in the off season, if you're trying to grow, get more lean body mass or trying to get better at something, it's probably good to let your body like, for lack of a better term, have some inflammation and not in the long term, but in response to that training session. Mm. But then if you're in a camp, again, this is where it's context dependent right. or like I'm a powerlifter getting ready to, for a meet and I'm supposed to be squatting four times a week. I've done that before. Uh, and I'm so sore that I can't squat my fourth session, then an ice bath or something, I'm not worried about growing muscle in that time. I'm worried about getting recovered enough that I can go do my next training session because that is a lot more important for my competition coming up than having that little bit of extra muscle.
0: So in camp, probably a good idea. Post-season, not a good idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, unless, again, it's all contextual dependent, right? Like if you start getting so sore that you can only train like twice a week, then maybe a certain level... But that points back to that there's an optimal range of inflammation that your body probably should be in that's optimal for health as well. Now, I don't think like doing a ketogenic diet for somebody, it's going to take them out of that necessarily. But I always want to give context because people hear these things
2: and they always think it's a a positive, like in terms of recovery. I believe that it can enhance the adaptive process associated with recovery. And I also believe that being in a ketogenic state will enhance your readiness your resilience and your recovery. So, from a military perspective, too, I, I believe that, uh, and and that needs to be validated and studied. But it's something that that we study. When you, I'm sorry uh, to interrupt you, but when you uh, advise this to the military, do did, did they? do you put them on a specific meal plan too, or do they have well, it's more consultants like in, that know how to do that? It's more like grants where this is being studied at a very fundamental, very controlled level from cells to animal models to, you know, human clinical trials going mm-hmm. on and, and where the data is being collected now. And some of it is taken empirically and anecdotally from the field or just from various uh, exclusive channels, I guess I would say. Uh, so that I am coming at it as a bias and I'm, I'm kind of speaking ahead of the science. But I do think that science already exists showing that you have uh, a greater adaptive effect if just by virtue of lowering inflammation over time in athletes, especially this probably pertains more to uh, endurance athletes. So it really needs to be studied in, in resistance and in MMA fighters and things like that. So there was a recent
1: study, and I can't remember the researcher's name. I'll send it to you. I had a lot of criticisms of it, but they did show that um, – ketogenic versus non-ketogenic diet uh, in people who were lifting weights, trying to get bigger, that there was actually slightly less muscle mass using the ketogenic diet. Would well, you think that would be because of the less protein? No, they equated protein. I'm pretty sure. I want to say they equated protein. Now, I, I don't know for sure. So I don't want to say authoritatively, but, it, but I believe that. But to
2: that. stay in ketosis, you're going to have... Did they adjust for calories?
1: I believe they did. Okay. So, again, yeah. I could be wrong, and so I'll yeah. go back and look, and I'll, I'll send it to you if you want it. Um, but it is possible, like, again, for every give-me, there's a gotcha in certain things, right? Mm. So, like, these things that activate different pathways, well, part of what ketones may signal is a deficit, because usually you don't have them in a surplus, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, may, we don't know if you can, like, uh, for example, like autophagy, right? Like, mm-hmm. for, if we're talking about performance and muscle, Everybody here is autophagy and that's a very, by the way, that's such a weird way to pronounce that because it's auto autophagy. and phagocytosis, so it shouldn't be autophagy, but anyway.
2: It, uh, it's a very rapidly emerging science and Naomi Wittell wrote a book about this and it just, it's like a New York so Times like, and that really covers the science. So well, it lasts two or three years. Yeah, autophagy. lysosomal
1: remodeling and degradation yes. of proteins, yes. but like very hot like topic what, right what, now. what gets me is like people who are big on intermittent fasting they'll say, well, oh, it increases autophagy. But you also, they're also saying you can grow all this muscle and it's going to be best for you know, building muscle. But that's not true because autophagy, autophagy is part of protein degradation. So if you're increasing that system, by definition, that's less muscle. So you're, there's always a give me and a gotcha. For one benefit, there might be a drawback. Now, depending on your individual situation, maybe it makes more sense, right? Like having the most muscle mass possible may not be the best thing for health. Now, we know Helping that having, having more muscle mass than normal is good for health. But maybe having like absolute peak muscle mass may not be the best thing for health. Yeah. you know. So it's like – that's what I was trying to say earlier. There's never going to be one diet that just fixes all of our problems. It depends on the individual and what they're trying to get out of it. Just like um, if I went to – and again, I'm not – have much – I watched MMA for years, loved your commentary. That's where I learned a lot of stuff about MMA. But if I went to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor and I said, what's the best technique? He's going to look at me like I'm an idiot, right? Because you're not just, he's not just going to say, yeah, uh, arm bar every time. That's the best technique for jiu-jitsu. And that's when people say, what's the best diet? It's the same thing, mm. right? It's completely contextual dependent. Right. Depends on you. And in the case of MA, depends on your opponent as well.
2: What your right? goals are and yeah. your strategies so, and your so tactics. I and,
1: think what we were trying to really emphasize is that individuality dependent, but also what I really want to emphasize today's show was calories matter. You know, calories matter. Even in even if you're eating low carb, you can't just eat as much as you want. And, and low carb
2: and is a very viable option. to uh, induce and sustain a calorie deficit that can contribute to body composition.
1: But even like you brought up uh, Floyd Mayweather earlier, which I thought was great because you said he drinks a Coke after training. Well, it's hard to argue with his results, but then again, sometimes elite athletes can get away with a lot of really dumb shit because they're so genetically superior that they were going to do well no matter what. Didn't Michael Jordan eat a Big Mac before every game?
0: No? Not true? Steak and baked potato. Steak and baked potato? Yeah. Where's the Big Mac
2: myth, myth come from? He was Fucking sponsored by McDonald's. Motherfuckers.
0: <laughs> Steak and baked potatoes sounds like My a good meal. My wife can
2: eat two or three Big Macs in a sitting and wash it down with a full sugar Coke and <clears throat> still gain nothing. Yeah, yes. Yes. I know. Floyd I, I cringe, than. but she. some people can do that. Some people can do this that. This is on Floyd's so, personal But, chef. but this – so it's, it's
1: – did he become this great because he ate this way or can he eat this way because he's this great athlete? It's probably the latter. Right. So we wouldn't recommend like somebody like if somebody's sitting at home and they want to become the greatest boxer ever. Don't go, you know, probably drinking Coke isn't the first step. Right. right. But this is what we do with nutrition yeah. because we pick out people that we follow and we go, oh, I, I, I'm just going to do that. And it, it's so individual. It's dependent. on the
2: sidelines of marathons like they'll hand off Cokes to people. Is that because like uh, I've seen because it because people just want it for fuel. Uh, I mean, people just want it for fuel. Tasted it? Mean, is it not a gated. bad
0: idea when you're doing something that's as grueling as a marathon? Well,
2: see, I don't
1: want to say it's a bad idea. I don't.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm not against it either. If you're a carb it's so burner, calorie, makes sense. Yeah, dense, right? Yeah, but you want calorie dense yeah, stuff when you're. That's when what I'm saying. It be so, a bad
1: yeah. thing. Again, context is so important right. because we said, well, don't ever drink a coke. Well, if you were starving to death, I promise you, you would drink a coke. Right. You know so. It's it's and if you need quick energy, it's probably not the worst thing that Floyd Mayweather could possibly do post training. but right? not optimal.
0: Yeah, I a mean, lot of I, people eat those honey waffles, you know, like when they're
1: doing hikes and stuff. But again, at the end of the day, if if he if his carbohydrate intake and I don't know what it is, but if he's eating five, six hundred grams of carbohydrate a day, is it really hurting him to have 40 grams of sugar from a Coke? if he's like maintaining his body weight, performing optimally, probably, probably not. Especially
0: when you think about the kind of grueling workouts that guy puts his body through. Maybe, maybe that's the only
1: way he can, maybe, I I don't know. Again, I'm, I am theorizing. Maybe that's the only way he can get enough food in Mm. is to eat really energy dense sources of food to maintain his body weight. And if you started saying, well, we need you to eat chicken breast and broccoli and you know, this organic rice and all this kind he, he might start dropping weight like a stone and, and his performance go in the tank. So this is why context is so important. And again, like when we talk about people think, how many times have you seen two guys in the octagon and just looked at their bodies and gone, this one guy is going to smash this other guy, like just in the primal part of your brain, because Mm. he was built like a tank. And then the other guy who looks like nothing just goes out and completely obliterates him. Happens all the time. All the time. All the time. Right. So. It's completely context dependent. the The biggest thing is to make sure that you don't run out of fuel during these things, right? right? Or whatever, and whatever your your sport is. I mean, again, I'm known as a carb guy, and I had this powerlifter one time telling me, "He's like, don't you think you should carb load the night before powerlifting me? And I was like, "Dude, you're doing nine reps, like you're you're doing. So you get three attempts on each lift: squat, bench press, and deadlift. You're not depleting you're glycogen. You're not carb limited. So yeah, that, you're not like." He's That's like,
2: what really amazed me. Even like you can fast for a week, which I did in deadlift, and it's not a significant uh inhibitor of your of your performance. Whereas but, yeah. like
0: running would be. Oh
2: yeah. Uh, running yeah, hills yeah, yeah. or something uh, like that. Or doing you know Rowing. prolonged, you know, yeah. resistance training, two right. or three three hours something like but that. But even
1: then it's probably not optimal to go and fasted to yeah, go I, do I, a strength and athletic not. event. But you know, it's it's you have to pick the context the individual and honestly it, people probably aren't going to want to hear this from a scientist but we don't know enough about this stuff yet to really say for each individual person what's best for them and that's why we kind of got to go by feel we know yeah. you
2: don't have to go drinking Gatorade throughout your 1 hour workout no. in the gym typically no. you know yeah. i'm i'm drinking ketones but it's you don't it's not going to offer you it's any Gatorade's advantage line. <laughs> it's not, and I did that for many years, actually, and I think guys still do it now. Of course, I mean, we see it all the time. But I mean, you, know, you, know, you got to make your your shake in the gym and drink it interwork. One yeah. thing yeah.
1: that one of the things that drove me nuts was I kind of got a little bit back and forth with Tim Noakes on Twitter, and uh, he kind of made it out to seem that. You know, he, people were dismissing some of his research because people in academia, or that peer review is broken. Who is uh Tim Noakes? Oh, sorry, he's a big uh, low carb proponent. He's a professor in South Africa, I want to say.
2: Yeah, yeah, and
1: um very knowledgeable very and no,
2: opinionated, but very
1: knowledgeable. He he said to me, he's like, "Well, that's because you've never challenged convention." Because I, I was, and I and Dom knows I have challenged every convention in the fitness industry that there ever was, <laughs> but it's just. You know, when, when people ask me, he's vocal this kind of about stuff.
2: it yeah. and assertive, but I you're just also open-minded. Yeah,
1: I'm very open-minded. Yeah. I just don't like, if you can't show me a hard evidence, you know, like th- there was a great quote from Thomas Sowell uh, that I saw the other day. He said, you could ask these in science and go a long way in terms of sorting out bullshit compared to what, uh, where's your hard evidence, you know, and what is the cost? Right. So it's well, low carb is better compared to what and what's the cost on performance or any of these other things. And then where's your hard evidence? Right. So this is why, like I said, science over time. Yes, you can have industry influences. You can have muddled data and some scientists fake data. We've we've both come across Mm -hmm. this scientists who have fake data. How frustrating is that? Oh, it, it makes me so incensed. In fact, I, I I won't say anybody by name, but I used to be in business with somebody who I found out that I had no hard evidence, but I had a lot of circumstantial evidence that they were faking data.
2: And this I, even happens in cancer research. It's a huge problem, yeah. even in cancer research. And I yeah. took
1: this person out to, out, out to dinner, and I told them, I was, I was like, we're done. Like, this thing we're doing is done. And And thank goodness I did because it came out later. People started replicating, trying to replicate his data, and nobody could replicate his data. Mm. And and the still had a pretty big following even now, but you know it's it's one of those things that it makes me so mad because then people get so frustrated because they feel like if they feel like scientists are just in industry's pocket, why are they going to believe anything any of us say? You
2: know, it's so frustrating, and that's why. What's the motivation? Money, power. Uh, yeah. Ego. If a lab's, you know? it's a company's funding you for a particular supplement, and you come out with consistently with negative data. What's the you know incentive yeah, for like, them to keep funding you? But if you if you're always that,
1: showing so. positive results on supplement studies, uh, supplements companies will want to
2: fund you, mm, of course. Now, of
0: course.
2: but you know it's so it seems but, like it's so dangerous. But I also want people to keep in mind that. It's got to be done in a very controlled, blinded fashion. That's the only way around it. I keep reminding people, like people who say things like, we found the cure for cancer and
1: the government is suppressing it. And uh, like and uh, all the scientists are just in the pie. What you're saying is you're saying that every scientist on the planet who does cancer research is an immoral, unethical piece of shit. That's what you're saying, because you're, you're telling me they don't have friends and family who are dealing with cancer and they're suppressing this research come on now yeah you know and that's that's the other big I'm a I'm a small government guy, and I'm a like I said a libertarian. But one of the things that makes me cringe about libertarians sometimes is these big elaborate conspiracy theories that come up around science and whatnot. Like you realize, like a senator can't even text a, a dick pic to his his side chick without like it winding up all over Twitter. You think they constructed these big elaborate theories? They can't even tie their shoes in the morning without spending ten thousand dollars. You know so. The idea that like all this research is being suppressed by the government—I, am not saying it's never happened, but I think it's pretty darn rare.
0: Mm. Well, gentlemen, we just did three plus hours. Thank you. Really, How crazy it felt, is that? felt like
1: six. I, no, I'm just—it uh,
0: <laughs> flew by. It Appreciate, flew by. Uh, Appreciate
2: you giving us. Yeah, uh, thank uh, you very, very much. much. Thank you. About that. Uh,
0: thanks for illuminating this stuff, which is still—it's so complex. It's part of the problem, and I think we could do a 100 of these shows, and we'd never cover all the topics or all the issues or all the details. And I think it's so incredibly difficult for people to find the right diet
2: and program that works for them. I'd like to add one thing, that the science is rapidly emerging, and the Metabolic Health Summit, which is happening in uh, the end of January, beginning of February uh, next year, 2019 – We'll be bringing in the leading scientists that are talking about all the different topics right now, including weight this? loss. And that's going to be in LA. It's actually, there's a flyer oh, in okay. your book there. If you look inside there, giving you a flyer. All right. LA, uh, January 31st to February 3rd in Long Beach. MetabolichealthSummit.com. Uh, it's going to be a very comprehensive group of of. Basic scientists, clinical scientists, entrepreneurs, and people, uh, everyday people that are just interested in this space. you going to And I will be at it. I'm helping to sort of organize and promote it, uh, but also moderating some of the things. We're going to hit on basically every topic that was discussed in my last podcast and this podcast, the leading scientist. I'm
1: going to show up and heckle.
2: Dude. Yeah, so we want we like definitely it. want Lane there too, and I think it would be great to have a panel discussion that addresses this with a couple more experts and personalities in in that. I think it's just a, it's awesome.
0: amazing how much information you have to absorb. it's, yeah. it's really. I well, mean, t- I've done t- so many diet podcasts, and yeah. I'm still a moron.
2: Well, that's that's why.
1: Like, you'll I always tell say people, you know, it, it's hard because if you're not going to do a degree yourself or do research yourself, it's so hard to know who. Like, you kind of have to pick people that you trust. Yeah. Right. And it's so hard to know who to trust because there was something that uh, Greg Knuckles, really smart guy, said that I, I think kind of ties things together nicely. He said people are really good at knowing when somebody has more knowledge than them about a subject. Like you talk to somebody for a little bit and you, you really can get an impression pretty quickly if they know more or less than you are about the same. What they're really bad at doing is figuring out amongst two people who know more than them who is the more knowledgeable of mm. the two. They yeah. are very bad at picking that out. So you kind of got to – Pick people who you trust. Now, if you're looking for people to trust, notice the three magic words that me and him both sit on here today at one point. I don't know. Usually, experts, they don't make broad claims. They don't use superlatives. They don't say things like best, worst, never, always. They're usually putting context to everything, and they're providing you with information that helps illuminate you that everything is nuanced. And that's why, like, I'm sure, again, I'll relate it to MMA. If you talk to anybody who's an expert in any different discipline and you ask them a broad question, you're going to get a really broad answer. And if you ask them a specific question, give them a lot of context, then they'll give you a specific answer.
2: Would, I, would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. So and I if think someone's that's... really strong on one side – Dig kind of deep and look for conflicts of interest too. And Mm, kind of, so I think that's kind of an important thing. I try to be transparent as as much as possible on on sort of things we're involved in. So I think that's super important. Yeah. And
1: I'm not, I'm not without bias too. I mean, I sell stuff. I've got a book out. I've got another book coming out. I have a website, you know, so it's,
2: yeah, but you're not actually, well, you're not advocating any particular (laughs) approach. You're kind of approaching it from, right. What I'm selling isn't really sexy. The complete (laughs) contest prep guide.
0: And this is available on Amazon, all those places.
2: Biolane.com. Biolane.com.
0: And your Twitter, Biolane. Instagram. Instagram, Biolane. Yep. And
2: Dom. Yeah, uh, ketonutrition.org. And uh, Ketone Technologies is our company. Uh, it's an information website. I don't have any products per se, at least not yet. But I put products on there that I personally use and kind of vetted out that I think could be helpful. And just a lot of information. Like your your prior podcast with me is on there. Awesome. And, uh, and Tim Ferriss and, and cool. uh, Rhonda Patrick, too. So Great. I have right on the front page. So. Um,
0: your Twitter and Instagram
2: yeah uh dominic.dagostino.kt i think is instagram not a huge instagram back but uh dagostino d-a-g-o-s-t-i two uh is my twitter handle uh and dominic dagostino for uh facebook too so there are three thank things. you gentlemen
0: i think we got a lot accomplished today thank you thank so you. much really appreciate it appreciate it, it. Really appreciate yeah. it thanks
2: joe